0: Hello there welcome to MMA Fight Club. I'm your host, Manny Galarza. We're going over UFC Fight Night Columbus coming up on Saturday, 26th of March with a 4 p.m. Eastern start time. We'll start with the prelims, work our way all the way up to the main card. The first few fights, we're going to do a light breeze breakdown not an in-depth breakdown we ran out of time this week but we're gonna just cover those first few fights very lightly not a full breakdown not in depth not the deep dive we're used to over here anyway we'll go over each fight one fight at a time give you our favorite picks to win we'll talk about some props but nothing too in depth with that said let's jump into it guys here we go the first fight the prelim card is going to be a featherweight about 145 pounds between luis sadana versus bruno Souza. Souza goes by the tiger el tigre he's 10 and 2 overall 4 and one in his last five fights a slight favor here it's a pickup minus 120 in the money line he's from brazil he's now based out of los angeles california 26 years old five foot ten and height with a 70 inch reach he's out of machida academy people say that he reminds them a lot of a younger machida we'll see that's a high bar to, to sort of pass right machida is a legend in the sport as for mr saldana 15 and 7 overall 4 and one in his last five fights as well Plus 100 on the money line. Again, a pick him. He's out of Phoenix, Arizona, currently 31 years old, eleven in height with a 73 inch reach. So, height and reach wise, a slight advantage there for Soldana. He's out of MA Lab, an excellent gym. The topology votes are coming in on the side of Souza, 70% to be exact, and 30% for Soldana. I'm going to tell you right now that I think that Bruno Souza, at 10 and 2, high winning percentage, has some Brazilian jiu jitsu skills, like serious skills. Luis Soldana belongs in the UFC, but comes off to me at times as a below average fighter. He's good on the ground he's good in the feet not great at anything and not terrible at anything so he's a serviceable fighter and that's why at 15 and 7 i think his record reflects that you got bruno souza el tigre 10 and 2 overall his jiu-jitsu skills are amazing his stand-up game is okay so again he has a strong point a part of his game where he could lean on out of machida academy he's getting a very good training a little younger here that's not a big factor but he is five years younger That's gonna be a factor here. The younger fighter with less losses on his career record. I like Souza to win the fight. At minus 120, it's good value. I would have expected him to be around minus 200 by the time this book closed. But with that said, Saldana's no slouch. Could he win the fight? Absolutely. His striking game is a little more superior than Souza, but Souza's jiu-jitsu skills and ground game, grappling technique, I think is far and away above Saldana. So I like Souza to win the fight. We're gonna bet this very lightly. Maybe a quarter of a unit straight up on Souza. We'll put him into some lottery parlays. Let's move on to the next fight. Here we go. Next fight, in the card's gonna be a flyweight bout, 125 pounds between the Undertaker, David Dvorak, versus Mathias Nicolau from Brazil. Nicolaou's 17 2 and 1 overall, 4 and 1 in his last five fights. Slight dog here at plus 105 on the money line. He's out of Brazil, 29 years old, 5'6 in height, 66 in reach. out of Nova Uniao. Very good gym down in Brazil. As for the Undertaker, Mr. David Dvorak, he's 20 and 3 overall. Very good record, 5 0 in his last five fights. He's out of the Czech Republic. Slight favor here at minus 125. This is a pick em. you can value on both sides. 29 years old, so same age as his opponent, 5'5 five five in height, 1 inch shorter, 68 inch reach though, 2 inch advantage there for the reach department for Dvorak, he's out of all sports academy. Both fighters are coming out of pretty good gyms. As for topology, Dvorak's the favorite, getting 74% of the votes and 26% of the votes coming in for Nikolaou. I like Nikolaou, here's my reasoning, and don't skip your mortgage payment to bet in this fight, it's an early prelim fight, very evenly matched, though he's not, again, he's very similar to Luis Saldana, not amazing on the feet, not amazing on the ground, but I believe he's fought the much better quality competition. Now, David DeVore coming in here, 20-3 overall record, looks very good. The jiu-jitsu skills of Matthias, not to be overlooked. I think overall, again, he's fought the better competition. I'm going to take a stab here on Matthias Nikolau. Didn't do film study. I want to make sure I'm clear on that. I did not do a deep dive in this fight. But I think Nikolaou, in my humble opinion, has fought the better competition. I see him squeaking out here a victory by decision. Both guys are evenly matched. The chin checks out for Dvorak and for Nicolau. But I think here in this fight, Nicolau simply has fought the better competition. His strength of schedule, quote unquote, is a little better. So I'm going to take Nicolau. How I'm going to bet it? Very light, just because I want some action. I'm a D-gen, Maybe like a quarter of a unit at best. I'm Matthias Nicolau. No parlay's here. No proper information. I'm going to take Nicolau by decision in a close fight. you never gonna make it you're not good enough next up we have a flyweight bout in the women's division 125 pounds jennifer maya the veteran facing off against man and fira, who goes by the beast fira is based out of france she's a minus 475 favorite huge favorite in the card, one of the biggest ones in the card she's 8 and 1 overall 5 and one in her last five fights 32 years old she's 5 foot 7 in height with a 66 in reach she's out a boxing squad as for miss maya 19 8 and 1 overall Okay record, it doesn't really reflect who she's fought. She's been in there with the best of the best of the division. She's two and three in her last five fights. A big dog here, plus 350 on the money line. She's based out of Brazil. 33 years old, so only one year older than Fiorat. When you first look at this matchup, you're like, oh, Fiorat's the young and up-and-coming prospect. Must be much younger. No, Maya's been around the block. She's been in the fight game for years. She's only one year older than her opponent. She's 5'4 in height with a 64-inch reach. She's out of shooto Boxe, Monstro. So height and reach-wise, an advantage there for Firat, which will play a factor here, because Firat, from a distance... Her kickboxing skills are phenomenal. For Maya, she works better in the clinch, she works better with ugly boxing. So if the fight stays at distance, there's going to be an easy path to victory for Beast on the scorecards. If it gets in close, that's where it's more of Jennifer Maya's wheelhouse. As for the votes on Tapology, Firo's getting 88% of the votes, to only 12% coming in for Maya. Very surprised. Jennifer Maya's been around for a long time. Madden Firo is brand new to this fight game, and yes, she looks good on film. And yes, I think she's going to win the fight. But good lord, where did the fans go for Jennifer Maya? She's been around for so long. She's fought the best of the best in the divisions. I guess it tells you that people are thinking it's time for her to sort of scoot on, move on out. And the new chick on the block, Mana is the flavor of the month or the flavor of the week or the flavor of the night, however you wanna put it. Bottom line is, I like Firo to win the fight. I am a little worried about the minus 475. I think it's been steamed. People know what's up. They've watched film on her. She looks very impressive in her last few fights. Very quick, we will definitely have the striking advantage in this fight. You smell that shit—the <laughs> one that breaks apart your parlay. If, man, if wins, thank God. A lot of parlays in the cash. But if somehow she loses, like a close women's fight decision where Jennifer Meyer just makes it ugly for a round or two, and the judges are like, "I don't know," just give it to Jennifer Meyer. Like a split-ass decision. You could see it coming. So bet the fight with caution. I'm not taking anything straight up on Firoz. The fight with the distance—I like that prop a lot. And man, if you're out to win. You gotta parlay it to get any value. No one's putting up 475 bones to win 100 bucks on a women's female fight with a veteran involved. With that said, guys, I like Fiora to win the fight. Let's move on. Next up, the prelim card's gonna be a middleweight bout, 185 pounds, between the Russian, who goes with a black wolf, Alishkab Kizraev. I'm gonna keep calling the black wolf because that name gets a little tricky. I don't wanna mispronounce it, against Dennis Tululian. I'm not stuttering. His name is Denis Tululian. Touloulian is also Russian. We got two Russian fighters here. Tulian's a plus 625 underdog currently on the books. It opened up at like plus 250, minus 300 for Kisraev. I guess the word got out, and now Kisraev, the black wolf, is a super duper favorite. Moneyline-wise, it precludes you from betting on it. You're gonna have to find a prop you like, like the fight staying under round and a half, the prop not going to decision which the fight not going to decision has probably already been steamed. You're looking at now a round bet. Do you take Keith right in round one, fight round two? What kind of submission? Does he do an Ezekiel choke? Does he do a uh, guillotine? What does he pull off? He's going to get a submission of some kind. For Dennis Tululian, he's 10 and five overall, 4-1 in his last five fights, 33 years old in 10 months, about to be 34 years old, Six foot one in height. We don't have a reach number on him, but watching film on him, I would suggest his reach is about 75 inches is comparable to his size as for the black wolf 13 and 0 undefeated russian fighter 5 and 0 in his last five fights obviously he's from that region that you call dagestan specifically from machkala russia which is the capital of dagestan 31 years old 5.9 and height with a 74 inch reach, so a two inch height disadvantage there for kiziev and i don't know maybe a two to three inch disadvantage as well in striking or reach length for kiziev he doesn't do much of the striking his striking game is raw to be kind but the ground game the grappling it's like people just pop out wrestlers over there in Dakistan. They all grapple. I'm sure like 80 year old men can still grapple and probably take me to the ground and submit me. Just runs in the jeans over there. So his grappling game is excellent. It's a big part of his path to victory. And when you watch Dennis Talulian's recent fights, he's getting submitted. And that's not a good look. He's getting submitted by guys who go to the ground. I want to point out something that I heard from CJ Saptic on Dogger pass I don't want to. Dennis Tolulian was a guy who basically waved his hand up like, listen, UFC. You can't find anybody to fight the Black Wolf. I'll fight him. Just give me a contract. I'll go in there. I'll take an L. No big deal. I'll do whatever you guys need. Just give me a contract. Give me a few fights. Ultimately, that's the backstory here. i have won on Dana White Contender Series in 2020. Couldn't find a fight for a full year or so. He backed off from one of the fights, but had like four total fights all get canceled. And people don't want to fight him. He's upcoming prospect, 13-0. He's an ugly fighter, meaning the fact that he takes it to the ground, submits you, won't fight on the feet. And for Dennis Tallulian, he's like, listen, guys, I'll do it. Just give me a contract. I heard that from Cody Saptic on Darker Pass. Looked that up a little bit myself, and it's true. Dennis is basically coming in here like, I'll take it, dude. Just I'll get beat up. It's fine. I'll take a round one submission loss. Just give me a contract. Give me some time. I'll get better, and I want some more fights in the UFC. And so they acknowledge his request, and they're bringing him in here for this fight. As for Tapology, not to be surprised, 97% of the votes here are coming in for the Black Wolf only 3% for Tululian. It is what it is. The money line is now way out of control. You got to find a prop you like. Round one, possibly for the Black Wolf. Otherwise, it's a pass all around. I think Kisraev wins the fight. If you want to be funny and <laughs> just try something for the heck of it, put like 10 bucks on Dennis. It's 10 bucks. You lose it, you don't lose it, whatever. You can't even buy two gallons of gas in this country right now for 10 bucks. So throw it out there if you like Tululian. But overall, it seems like he's just the meat right there. They're serving him up for the Russian to go 14 0. And we'll see what happens post-fight. Will Kizriyev be able to fight here in the near future? I hope so. He seems like a pretty good prospect. But I'm going to point this out. physique is not everything. I don't want to body shame anyone, but he does not look like he's in the best shape. He looks like, put it this way, if someone could extend him to round two or three and defend a few takedowns, there's some chinks there in the armor. With that said, guys, I do think the Black Wolf wins the fight at minus 900 to minus 1,000. It's untouchable. I'm just taking it as a pick. He's going to win. Betting-wise, i I probably won't touch any aspect of it other than a few props where he wins by round one or again, tolulian winning somehow by some kind of miracle. That's the breakdown, guys. Let's move on.
1: If the madness don't go
0: Next up in the prelim card, we have a bantamweight bout at 135 pounds between the Mongolian fighter, Baccaro Dana, who goes by Storm, and Chris Gutierrez, who goes by El Guapo, the American fighter. El Guapo is 17, three and two overall. 4-0 and one in his last five fights, currently a slight dog here at plus 105 on the money line. He hails out of Englewood, Colorado, 30 years old and 11 months, so about to be 31 years old. Five foot nine with a 67 entry, he's out of Chop Shop MMA. As for Baccarat, he's 12-2 overall, 4-1 his last five fights. A slight favor here to pick him 125 on the money line. He's based out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, where he trains out of Jackson, Wink, MMA. 32 years old, 5'7 in height with a 70-inch reach. So a slight reach advantage there for Baccarat and a slight height advantage for Chris Gutierrez. Look at the numbers on Tapology, Dana's the favorite, getting 64% of the votes here. Only 36% of the votes coming in for Gutierrez. I do agree. I like Baccarat to win the fight. I'm a little surprised the money line is so close. When i watched film and did the breakdown i found myself falling in love more and more with dana baccarat i think in this matchup here he's the much better fighter there are similarities but they both have the same weaknesses and on the stand-up part of their game i think dana baccarat is just a harder striker has better durability for the striking numbers of these two fighters chris crutettors is landing 4.63 strikes per minute absorbing 2.50 as for Dana baccarat landing a little more 6.28 per minute and absorbing 2.73 high output for dana baccarat that's part of his path to victory, but both guys are good strikers and both guys have positive ratios. Now, for takedown offense, as you can see if you're watching on YouTube, Dana Baccarat has not notched a single takedown yet at the UFC. And as for Gutierrez, he's only averaging 0.48 takedowns for 15 minutes. So neither guy's looking to take the fight to the ground. They want to work on the feet. As for takedown defense, not that it's going to matter, but Gutierrez is defending at 75% and Baccarat 57% respectively. Some background information on Dana Baccarat. Born in Mongolia, grew up in the suburbs. In 2007, at the age of 17 years old, he began kickboxing. In 2010, three years later, he started mixed martial arts training, and then three years after that, he went pro in mixed martial arts. He signed with the UFC in 2019. His UFC record is 3-1. Some notable opponents that Dana Baccarat has fought thus far. He fought Brandon Davis last year, 2021, got a round one TKO win. Very impressive. Not that Davis is a top-notch fighter, but he cleaned him up pretty quickly and was leading some very hard strikes. He was a minus-150 favorite in that fight which reminds me of this. I think Utenas is a step up over Davis, but this line is very favorable if you like Dana the way we do. And again, he was a minus 150 favorite in that fight against Davis and got the round one finish. In Dana's UFC debut, he fought Haley Alatang, 2019, decision loss. It was his debut. It was a close fight. He was a minus 105 pick him on the money line. In that fight, he takes some really hard shots from Alatang. It was the two Mongolian fighters squaring off. They actually know each other outside the cage personally. And unfortunately, he gets short end of the stick. But what I saw in that fight, which to me was very valuable, he took some very hard shots from Alatang, shook it off, little damage on his face, but was never wobbled, was never stunned, showed a tremendous chin, and that's going to fare well in this fight because Christian Tennis is a good striker. Kicking game is good. Striking game is good. His only path to victory is going to be obviously in the scorecards or by knocking out Backerow. I don't think he's going to knock out the Danny Backerow. The guy's got a very solid chin. Some things I like about Backerow, Very powerful hands. Of his 12 wins, he's had 11 finishes. And keep in mind, it's a 135-pound division. So the dude's got some serious power in his hands. He's got great footwork. He knows how to move in and out of range. He stays light on his feet the entire fight. His cardio is fantastic. He also uses feints very well to set up shots. As we mentioned just a minute ago, against Alatang, he took some hard shots, he's very durable. He's never been finished in a mixed martial arts fight. He has some kicking ability, I wish he used a kicking game a little bit more, but he's so confident in his hands, he doesn't use kicks as often as I'd like to see him do it. Now the weakness is for Dana Baccaro. He hasn't faced tremendous competition just yet. We just talked about Brandon Davis, it's like, it's Brandon Davis. Against Alatang, a Far East fighter, not very well known, he comes up short in decisions. So he hasn't really been tested, he hasn't really been pushed through the brink, Chris Kutena is maybe his best opponent to date. And last but not least for Baccarat, he doesn't have BJJ skills, wrestling skills, or any kind of grappling skills. It won't matter in this fight, but as he progresses through the UFC, he's gonna come across some guys that are badass on the ground. It's gonna be a challenge for him. He's gotta continue to improve in that area. Now, as for Gutierrez, he was born in the United States to a Colombian father and a Guatemalan mother. He began training at Mixed Martial Arts at the age of 16 years old. He's got a purple belt in jiu-jitsu. He had a 10-2 amateur record. He went pro in 2013. He fought in Bellator and LFA prior to signing with the UFC. He won his UFC debut in 2019 versus Ryan McDonald. Some of the most notable opponents for Gutierrez, he fought Andre Ewell last year, got the win 2021 by decision. He came in as a minus 135 favorite. He fought Cody Durden, who we just saw last weekend get completely pummeled by Mohamed Makaev. He went to a draw against Cody Durden. That's not aging well. He was a minus 275 favorite in that fight. I don't want to overstate it, but that's the kind of number and minus 275 you expect the guy to go in there, possibly even get a finish, and it goes to a draw against a guy that we just saw get cleaned up by like a 21, 23-year-old prospect in Mohamed Makaev. Felipe Calares, 2021 decision win by split decision. He was a minus 250 favorite in that fight. Once again, at minus 250, you're not expecting to win by split decision. Now, here's an example. He was a plus 385 underdog against Ronnie Barcelos. 2018, he gets submitted in round two. That's about right when you're a big underdog you should be getting finished within the fight now ronnie barcelos we just saw him a few months ago get beat up by henry that's not aging well either so he got submitted in round two by a guy who's a submission guru and that sort of exposes again what chris Gutierrez and dana baccarat are not good at which is the ground attack and last but not least he fought timur valiev back in 2016 before both fighters joined the ufc he lost that fight by decision the things i like about mr Gutierrez, he's on a five fight winning streak he's been very active the past few years he fought twice 2021 he fought twice 2020 and twice 2019 He's a fluid striker. He switches stances. For him, boxing and striking is very natural. You could tell that kickboxing was his first form of mixed martial arts. Nice front kicks, nice lower leg kicks. Actually won a fight a few years ago by just damaging the front leg of his opponent. Chris Couteres has a very nice kicking game, and I think that's where he's got an advantage here over Baccarat. Baccarat's probably got the power advantage in his hands. and His boxing's very fluid, but Couteres has the kicking component, which Baccarat does not use kicks very much. Some of the weaknesses that I see in Couteres' game. Low finish rate. Five of his last six fights have gone a decision like dana he has a very weak grappling game it won't be a factor in this fight but as both guys move forward they're gonna come across guys that are very good in grappling now as i mentioned before about his topology he's got good names in the topology but he comes up short against the good names against valiev he loses by decision against barcelos he gets submitted and against cody durden who's not that amazing of a fighter he goes to a draw that's concerning for me with chris Gutierrez because dana baccarau may very well be his best opponent to date that he's faced and this guy's pretty damn good and last but not least for Guterres, he's also gonna have a three-inch reach disadvantage in this matchup. I do wanna note though, when he fought Andre Yule, he had even more of a disadvantage on the reach and he actually closed the distance and was able to win that fight. The fights we watched around this film, we watched Dana versus Alatang and Dana versus Davis. We also watched Guterres versus Yule and Guterres versus Corrales. If you're new to the channel look down below description you're going to see those links for those four fights as part of our free video library if you want to check that out in your free time the last few notes i have these two fighters experience wise give the edge to caris Tedes. even though i like dana out in this fight he's a smart fighter he's just not fought the competition that cuteres has fought in for fighter iq both guys check out they're not dumb fighters i don't see them doing anything stupid in the octagon but the reality is they are one-dimensional fighters at this point they're on the feet the entire time the grappling game is deficient wrestling game is deficient jiu-jitsu skills are deficient that's going to catch up to them as they move forward in the ufc for cardio i give a slight edge to dana baccarat but here's why it's not that Chris tedes looks tired in round three it's just that dana baccarat looks so sharp in round three he's lighting his feet He's quicker, he's faster than what I've seen from Chris Utenas. So from a cardio standpoint, I just believe that Dana Baccarat will be fresher in round three. For finishing ability, we talked about it. Dana Baccarat has a significant advantage in the finishing department. For boxing, this one is about what you like more. Do you like the mixing of kickboxing in there with the striking that Chris Utenas offers? Or do you like the raw power that Dana Baccarat has? Not to mention, Baccarat has more volume. So in the boxing department, I think it's like you can't really separate them too much. After the fight's over, we might know who the better boxer it is. But coming into the fight here, I think they both offer a lot in the boxing department. That's their milieu. That's their that's where they exist, okay? So this is the area of the game that they focus on the most. For grappling, non-existent. And as for the heart meter, our last category that we consider, both guys check out. You don't see these guys tapping out early, giving up. If they get pushed against the fence and they get challenged, they're going to strike back and try to fight their way out of it. So, from the heart standpoint, I expect to see a lot of passion. And I think the fight does not go to the distance. I do believe that Dana Baccarat catches Chris Guterres at some point and finishes the fight. If he doesn't finish the fight, it's going to be a grueling three round fight. Goes to the scorecards. I still think Baccarat lands the sharper, harder punches. Maybe puts Chris Gutierrez down at some point. That's the breakdown, guys. Let me know what you think. Do you like Guterres? Do you like Baccarat? Am I leaning too hard here on the Asian fighter? I like Dana Baccarat a lot. I'm going to take him straight up, at least for one unit. I may parlay him in one or two parlays. Not to get too crazy. Thanks for joining us, guys. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe and take advantage of our free video library below. Peace.
1: me she didn't
0: got the best of me don't be thinking less me. Why you keep all oh, and- righty next fight up on the prelim card is going to be a bantamweight weigh bout 135 pounds between two female fighters the american sarah mccann versus carol rosa from brazil rosa's 15 and 3 overall 5 and one in her last five fights a favor here at minus 200 in the money line 27 years young 5 foot 5 in height with a 67 and a half entry she trains out of parana valtudo as for sarah mccann the olympian 12 and 6 overall, 2 and 3 in her last 5 fights, a dog here at plus 170 in the money line. She's out of South Carolina, currently 41 years old, 5'6 in height with a 66-inch reach. She's out of Revolution Mixed Martial Arts. The obvious here is Sarah McCann is much older, approximately 14 years older than her opponent. Height-wise, she has an advantage by 1 inch, and reach-wise, about the same. Looking at the numbers here in tapology, it appears that Rosa is the big favorite, getting 86% of the votes here, only 14% coming in for the Olympian McCann. I'm going to be a contrarian here. I'm on the side of Sarah McCann. I'll explain it to you. I totally understand people being on the side of Cara Rosa. She's a good up-and-coming prospect. She's fought some decent level competition. Her hands are pretty quick. I believe she's got better cardio. But when we break this down here, it's a women's bout. Women's MMA tends to be a juggernaut. There's a lot of variables to consider, and I think the takedown offense of Sarah McCann in round one and two could be the difference, so just hear me out. Let's talk about the striking numbers first. Sarah McCann's letting 2.32 strike per minute, very low volume, absorbing 1.94, positive ratio, but again, very low volume. As for Kara Rosa, High volume here, 7.88 strikes per minute, and 5.17 is what she's absorbing. Good ratio for Rosa, but more importantly, very high volume. As for takedown offense, here's Sarah McCann's wheelhouse, landing 4.41 takedowns for 15 minutes compared to 1.50 for Cara Rosa. For takedown defense, McCann's defending at a 50% rate, and for Cara Rosa, 91%. That 91% takedown defense for Cara Rosa is going to definitely be impacted in this fight. I believe Sarah McCann will get several takedowns throughout the course of this three-round fight. Let's talk about Sarah McCann. She's got a story to tell. She started wrestling at the age of 14 years old. Her older brother was also a wrestler. Unfortunately, in 1999, he was murdered at the age of 21. After finishing up in high school, she went to Lock Haven University in Pennsylvania, where she earned her bachelor's degree and also wrestled on the men's team. She earned her master's degree from Gardner Webb University in North Carolina. She does extensive community work, and she even traveled to Sri Lanka after the tsunami with several Olympic athletes to help people rebuild their homes and find new places to live. Unfortunately, in 2004, another tragedy happened in her life. She was on a road trip from Colorado to Iowa with her fiancé, Stephen Blackford. Now, Blackford was a former three-time NCAA All-American from Arizona State University. Their vehicle runs off the road, flips over several times. Her fiancé is ejected from the vehicle and pronounced dead at the scene. She also sustained several injuries. Nothing life-threatening, but she had broken ribs, a broken arm. She was also later charged with careless driving. Talk about adding insult to injury. She won the silver medal at the Olympic Games in Athens, Greece in 2004. She became the first ever female wrestler from the United States to win an Olympic medal. She is being inducted into the Wrestling Hall of Fame this year as part of the class of 2022. She went 2-0 as an amateur. She went pro in 2004. 18 years of MA pro experience. This lady has been around the block. She fought Invicta, Titan FC, and Strikeforce prior to the UFC. She signed with the UFC in 2013. She has a daughter with her former training partner, Trent Goodell. And she gave birth to her second child in 2018 with her boyfriend, Chad Bingham. The most notable opponent in the career of Sarah McCann. And there's a lot of them. Way back in the day, for example, she had this streak of opponents from 2014 to 2015. Ronda Rousey, Misha Tate, Amanda Nunez, and Lauren Murphy. She lost to Ronda Rousey, round one TKO. She had a decision loss to Misha Tate. She had a round one submission loss to Amanda Nunez and a split decision win over Lauren Murphy. So she's fought the best of the best. Now, granted, it was a long time ago, her more recent opponent is Juliana Pena. Last year, she lost that fight. Going on the scorecards though, she won round one and every judge had a losing round two. and round three, To slow down a little bit. Cardio might be an issue here, getting older, and she gets submitted by a very good fighter. Juliana Pena is the current champion in this division. She just beat Amanda Nunes not too long ago. So it's not a terrible loss in the fact that she's fighting a very high level opponent. Had two good rounds, third round again, makes some mistakes. Her boxing looks to have improved a lot as well. In the fight against Juliana Pena, it seems like she's a little smoother. Her striking has definitely improved over the course of her career that was the big part of her game that needed improvement she's a good grappler good wrestler right has a wrestling base but the striking was robotic at times now she looks like she's improved in that area a lot in the fight against pena she does take her down in round one easily wins round one with ground control position control i'd like to see her more busy on the ground but still she takes Pena down in round one no problem takes her down again in round two so the wrestling was there it was a matter of volume at one point in round two she has positioned for a long period of time But now Pena's the one landing more strikes off the back. And Sarah McCann's doing a little bit of laying and praying and just not being active enough. There's an argument that can be made that she actually won round one and two against Pena. Now, round three, there's no question what happens there. She starts to gas out and fade. But round one and two, Sarah McCann looked good in that fight. Another opponent, Mariana Renault, 2018. She loses that fight by submission. And here's where you start to put the doubts in your head about Sarah McCann. Renault was 40 years old at the time of that fight. She's now retired. She also lost her five last pro fights before she retired. Her last win that she had, you guessed it, against Sarah McCann. So that's kind of a tough one. You look at that fight in just a vacuum and you're like, damn, Sarah McCann couldn't beat Mariana Renault, who went out with a five-fight losing streak. And what happens in that fight? She gets submitted by Renault. And why did she get submitted? Again, a fast start. She wins round one, looks pretty good in round two, gets knocked down at one point in round two by Renault. Renault cracks her. She's in the guard of Mariana Renault. She almost gets armbar. She almost gets triangled back and forth. The next thing you know, she gets choked out and gets a triangle choke. So it's like low fighter IQ moment. I think tied into the fact that she's getting fatigued. She's starting off fast in her fights. Her path to victory in this fight has to be a solid round one and two. I believe round three she will lose round three no matter what happens because the cardio's not there. Forty-one years old, twenty-seven year old prospect here who will have the pressure on her in round three, knowing that listen, I've been on my back for two rounds. Sarah McCann probably got round one and two. Now the path to victory for Kyle Rosa. May not be easy to submit Sarah McCann, but for Carol Rose, it's gonna have to be on the feet. Can Sarah McCann defend enough on the feet for the last round, even while getting tired? I think she can. And when she loses to Renault, it's actually even worse when you watch it on film. It's a rear naked choke, but Renault doesn't get the choke all the way in. She has like a one-arm choke going. The other hand's not really able to get fully involved because Sarah McCann's got the other hand. And still Renault gets the one-arm choke. Sarah McCann taps out. Not a good look. I think that's fatigue. That's age. That's a lack of fighter IQ on the ground with a good grappler. But in this fight, is Cara Rosa an amazing grappler? Does she have amazing submission ability? I don't think so. I think Sarah McCann should be strong enough on the ground to defend some of those things. The things I like about Sarah McCann, she is jacked. She's definitely not missing her weight training program. She's obviously a solid wrestler, an Olympian, and she uses it in the octagon. She needs it to get a path to victory. She requires the grappling in the wrestling game to help her secure a victory in the octagon. When she's on top, because of her build, because she's very thick, she can be heavy on top. She looks to me like the better overall athlete when you compare to Cara Rosa. But again, there's a 14-year age difference. Carol Rosa should have a little more in the gas tank, should be a little faster at times. Like they say for the guys, how they have the old man strength. I'm not sure if it applies to women, but I would think that Sarah McCann has the old lady strength. And if she gets the fight to the ground, going to be hard for Carol Rosa to deal with her there. Sarah McCann hasn't had any submissions recently, but she has some in the past. For example, Kimura's rear naked choke. If Carol Rosa makes a mistake on the ground on her back, I'm not surprised if Sarah McCann looks to get a submission of some kind. Now, the weaknesses in Sarah McCann's game. The obvious, 41 years old. You can't get over that. Father Time is undefeated. She's three and four in her last seven MMA and grappling bouts combined. She's one in three in her last four MMA bouts. She doesn't fight as often as she used to. For example, she fought once last year, once 2020, and three times in 2019. This will be her first fight of the year. Does she fight again this year? I don't know. At 41, this may be her send-off fight. She's a limited striker with subpar technique. Now, again, she's made big improvements in the striking. It's a little more fluid. Seems to be some power behind it. She is a quick starter, but on the flip side, once halfway through round two comes around, round three, she starts to make mental mistakes. She slows down. Look at her build. It's high energy movements for her, even on the feet when she strikes. She doesn't throw many strikes, but when she does, they're high power strikes. She needs to pay attention to her gas tank in order to get to round three and survive round three. Let's talk about Carol Rosa, born and raised in Brazil. She went pro in 2012. She has no amateur record. She fought in future FC prior to signing the UFC. She signed with the UFC 2019. She's undefeated in UFC with 4-0 record. She's the number 12-ranked bantamweight fighter in the UFC. A win here doesn't maybe get her top 10, but keeps her moving in the right direction. The most notable opponents that Kara Rosa has fought against, and she's young. Keep in mind, 27 years old. She fought Betch Carrera last year, won the fight by decision. She was a minus 650 favorite. She looked really sharp in that fight, quick, picked apart Betch Carrera. The thing is, Betch Carrera has fought a lot of wars, and that was her very last fight. She was going out on her sword. She wanted to put on a good show. Carol Rosa was a good opponent. Both respected each other very much they're both from brazil but ultimately what do we learn from that fight we just learned that carol rosa a much younger fighter can take out an old head like Bitch carrera so we just didn't learn much from that fight but she did what she was supposed to do Her prior fight, Jocelyn Edwards, 2021, she won that fight by decision as a minus 190 favorite, another low-level opponent. She dominated her at times, and she showed some good takedown offense. When you watch the fight against Betch Carrera, Carol Rosa is on the feet, predominantly the entire fight. I think there's no takedowns from her in that fight. Against Jocelyn Edwards, she does get some takedowns, shows some diversity, and if she does that with Sarah McCann, it's not a bad move, especially halfway through round two, finish up the round on top. In round three, if Sarah McCann gets tired, I'm going to be curious to see if Rosa does the wrestling here against Sarah McCann like she did against Edwards. It looked good but I think there's gonna be a power disadvantage here. When she locks up with Sarah McCann, it's like locking up with a bull. McCann early in the fight is going to be hard to deal with. In the clinch, I believe she's gonna have a power advantage. And one more fight to talk about for Cara Rosa. She fought Lara Procopio in 2019. She won the fight by split decision. That was her UFC debut. She was a minus 120 favorite. A kind of an odd fight. I thought she won the fight outright, but you got one judge out here smoking crack. Two judges thought she won the fight, and every single media member also thought she won the fight. It's amazing how these judges see something that no one else sees. In any case, she wins the fight as a slight favorite. It's her UFC debut. But keep in mind, though, Lara Procopio is one in two in her last three fights. She's an average band weight fighter at this point. So she's got these wins here against Procopio, Edwards, and Carrera. what do we know we don't know much sarah mccann has shared the octagon with some of the best of the best now granted she's lost to some of the best of the best as well but the experience advantage is clear on the side of sarah mccann or Cara rosa we just don't know yet what we have here i will say this though about the fight against procopia she was only 23 at the time of that fight so give her a little bit of a break she is growing she is learning a lot but uh, she hasn't really been tested this may very well be the toughest fighter she's had in her career granted she's 41 years old sarah mccann but still this may be her toughest test some things I like about Kara Rosa, her wrestling game is underrated, I think. She gets some good takedowns at times, and she gets some nice top control. Can't she do that against Sarah McCann? Maybe round two, round three. I think round one's going to be hard for her to do that. She's also a very young fighter, as we mentioned, so she's making big improvements. At the age of 27, she's approaching her prime years, and she's on a four-fight winning streak in the UFC. She's also a very balanced fighter. She's not an amazing wrestler, not an amazing striker, but not bad in either department. She could win a fight on the ground or on the feet. She clearly will have a striking advantage on the feet here. Not because her technique is so much better than Sarah McCann, but she just simply throws more volume. You can't win on the feet if you don't throw enough volume. And last but not least for Cara Rosa, she has a nice inside lower leg kick. Doesn't use it as often as I would like her to use it, but Sarah McCann doesn't throw any kicks. So once again, on the feet, you got Cara Rosa, more volume, leg kicks, a variety of different ways to hit her opponent. Sarah McCann, one-two punch every now and then. One-two punch with a lot of energy, looks for the takedown. If she cannot get the takedown against Carol Rosa, it's going to be game over for Sarah McCann. With 91% takedown defense for Rosa, I'm sure a lot of people are saying, well, how can Sarah McCann get her down? Her takedown defense is amazing. McCann will get her down in round one. It's what happens halfway through round two. Does Sarah McCann keep her down in round two? Does she get a good takedown? Does she clearly win round one and two? These judges are finicky. It's a women's fight. If it's close in round two, round three is going to be a problem for McCann. She's going to be gassed out. She's going to lose round three either way in this fight. I'm not sure she gets finished, but if the fight is close in round two, you could bet Sarah McCann will probably lose the fight because round three will go all towards Rosa. It'll look good. The judges have amnesia. They can't remember what happened in round one and the fight will probably go to Rosa. My only concern is for Kara Rosa. She's got limited finishing ability. Her last finish was in 2019, about three years ago. Her submission defense has been average at best up to now. She's got two of her three losses have been by submission. She also has limited head movement. Her head movement is not excellent even when she's fresh. As the fight goes on, her hands start to come down a little bit, and her head is right there. Not good head movement. Her footwork tends to slow down. I'm not sure that she has the best cardio either. I'm not saying she's going to be more tired than Sarah McCann. I believe Sarah McCann will be the more fatigued fighter in round three. But if Cara Rosa slows down in round one or two, Sarah McCann punches with a lot of power. Now, granted, you could see it coming. It's easy to project. It's kind of robotic at times, and it's a one-two every time. There's hardly any three, four, five-punch combinations coming from Sarah McCann. But if she lands one of those punches against Cara Rosa and Cara Rosa is not ready for it or her guard is down, her head's not moving, she can get clocked and that could lead to an easy takedown for Sarah McCann. Sarah McCann punches to close the distance and then look for a takedown. You know what I'm saying? Kind of like a Khabib Nurmagomedov. Doesn't have good punching offense, not good striking, but just uses it to close the distance and look to set up a takedown. The films we watched to bring down this fight, we watched Rosa vs. Carrera. We watched Rosa vs. Edwards and Rosa vs. Procopio. We also watched McMahon vs. Pena renault and landsberg the links for those six fights are down below the description if you want to check those out as part of our free video library that's the breakdown guys again i know i'm a contrarian here most people are on Kara rosa i do like rosa as well she should win the fight the problem is it's women's mma and what should happen doesn't seem to happen all the time and if sarah mccann gets a takedown in round one gets the entire round on the ground gets that round one comes into round two has enough cardio to get three quarters of that round two on the ground with position control. You can see her going to round three up 2-0 and if she does that now it's about just defending herself on the feet not getting finished not giving up a 10-8 round i'm not sure that can happen i'm not saying that because i think round three is going to be tough for sarah mccann all that said she's a veteran she's been around the block she's been through so many things in her personal life i got to imagine she knows it's the last few fights she's going to have in her ufc career hopefully the cardio shirt up hopefully she can get round one and two i'm on sarah mccann the olympian to win the fight. That's the breakdown, guys. Give me some feedback. What do you think? Am I crazy? Is Cara Rosa a better prospect than what I'm thinking? Am I underrating Cara Rosa? I like Cara Rosa. I just think in this fight, if she cannot defend the takedowns in round one and two, it can get ugly. And ugly women's fights go to the scorecards. And then at that point, you just don't want to be holding a ticket for minus 200 on Cara Rosa, let alone having her into a parlay. Those are my thoughts, guys. Thank you for stopping by. As always, please like and subscribe and take advantage of our free video library below. Yeah, it's so bad. I want to shoot, shoot, shoot. The last fight in the premium card, or the main event for the premium card, is a welterweight battle at 170 pounds between Neil Magny, who goes by the Haitian sensation, versus Max Payne Griffin. Mr. Griffin is 18 and 8 overall, 3 and 2 in his last five fights. A dog here at plus 195 on the money line. He's currently out of Sacramento, California, 36 years old, 5 foot 11 height, with a 76 inch reach. He's out of MMA Gold Fight Team. As for the Haitian sensation, he's 25 and 8 overall. For one of his last five fights, a favorite here at minus 240 in the money line. He's out of Chicago, Illinois, but now trains in Denver, Colorado, out of Elevation Fight Team. 34 years old, six foot three with an 80-inch reach. You'll have a height and reach advantage here that's pretty significant. As for Tapology, Magni said 92% of the votes here, only 8% coming in for Griffin. I do like Magni to win. A little surprise, Griffin's not getting more love from the public. Let's talk about the striking numbers first. For Neil Magny, landing 3.67 strikes per minute, absorbing 2.06. As for Griffin, landing 4.35 strikes per minute, absorbing 3.97. Both guys have a positive ratio. Griffin has slightly more output. As for Neil Magny's takedown offense, landing 2.44 takedowns per 15 minutes, compared to 1.63 for Max Griffin. A little surprised to see 1.63 for Max Griffin when you watch him fight. He's not much of a takedown guy or grappler. Neil Magny is decent at takedowns, decent at wrestling, but not an amazing grappler, and his submission skills are very average, which we'll talk more about as we break down this film. Neil Magny is defending takedowns at 57% rate, compared to Max Griffin at 70%. Let's talk about the background information of these two fighters. For Neil Magny, born and raised in New York, he's of Haitian and Dominican descent, and that's why he goes by the Haitian sensation. He moved to illinois chicago to be exact when he was 12 years old he has a bachelor's degree from southern illinois in criminal justice he's a multi-sport athlete in high school and in college where he wrestled and played football at both levels he's also an army veteran he once was deployed to kuwait he left service in 2013 he's a brown belt BJJ. he signed with the ufc 2013 he's got an 18 and 7 overall ufc record he's a family man him and his wife have a son together some of the more notable names that Neil Magny has fought against, he fought Jeff Neal last year, won that fight by decision. He was a plus 160 underdog coming into that fight. Jeff came out very aggressive in round one, backed up Magny, looked to have the momentum, but Magny, being the veteran he is, was slow playing it, using his tie clinch to pull in the back of the neck of the shorter fighter, started to wear him out. As for the scorecard, two of the three judges scored round one for Jeff Neal, but all three judges had Neil Magny winning round two and round three. One judge had Neil Magny winning all three rounds. I do believe round one should have gone to Jeff Neal. It shows that Neil Magny is going to have the maturity to slow play it, not overreact. He was getting backed up by Jeff Neil, but he started to wear down Neil. Towards the end of round one, you can see the craftiness with Neil Magny and his way to be able to be patient and wear down Jeff Neil over the course of the fight. And it should be noted, Neil has usually a height and reach advantage, which he'll have here in this fight. The height advantage allows him to easily get that Muay Thai clinch, pull down the head of his opponent. Obviously, knees are a possibility, but just wearing down his opponent by pulling on the back of his head. I love the way he turned up in round two and three against Jeff Neil. He talked about it in the post-fight interview, he uses cardio as a weapon, and again he trained to elevation fight team, so in round two or three, Neil tends to be the more fresher fighter. In that fight, it was a prime example of how he uses cardio as a weapon. He even lands a nice takedown in round three against Jeff Neil, the smaller, shorter fighter, but you see Neil Magni, crafty veteran, knows how to get the best of his opponent, knows how to use cardio as an advantage. He also fought Rafael Dos Anos back in 2017, lost that fight via round one submission, and that's the biggest chink in the armor for Neil Magni. He's okay at wrestling. He gets up pretty quickly when he gets taken down. But the grappling and submission defense, not great. If he fights a guy who's very good in those areas, it tends to be a problem for him. He was a plus 170 underdog in the fight against Rafael Dos Anjos. And again, loses in round one by submission. He beat Robbie Lawler 2020 by decision. He fought Santiago in 2018. Lost a fight in round four. TKO loss. pontanibio tough dude. Wily veteran. You chalk it up as a learning experience there for Neil Magny. 2021 lost against Michael Chiesa, not surprised. Why did he lose? Because Chiesa is a grappling expert. That's what he does. In that fight, Neil Magny came in as a minus 150 favorite. He ends up losing because Michael Chiesa is again, a grappler by trait. Neil Magny, that's not the best part of his game. The things i like about neil magny he will have a five inch reach advantage and a four inch height advantage in this fight he knows how to use that advantage when he's in the center of the cage for striking and even in the clinch he knows how to use it as an advantage it's not like he's fighting a fighter here who's smaller shorter and wrestles a lot max griffin doesn't wrestle very much he likes to also strike on the feet and have distance Magni has excellent footwork, he uses it to get in and out of range, to circle his opponents, and again in round 2 or 3 when his opponent is usually slowing down, he's still light on his feet, good quick movement, not a steady target, he's able to stand his bicycle for all 3 rounds. Magni's also a very active fighter, he had 3 bouts last year, 2 MMA bouts and 1 grappling bout, 2020 he fought 3 times in mixed martial arts, so that's 6 total bouts in the last 2 years. And here we are early in 2022, and he's back at it, I'm sure he'll fight again here later this year. The weaknesses in neil magny's game his grappling as we mentioned is not a strong suit in this matchup it shouldn't be a problem Mask griffin is an average okay wrestler grappler himself doesn't have many submission wins either. So Neil Magny should be okay in that area, but it's still a weakness in his game. He's also got limited finishing ability. His last four wins were all via decision. That's concerning because you have a fight here where he's a minus 240 favorite and it can come down to the opinion of a judge or two whether or not he wins the fight. So hopefully the people like us who are on the side of Neil Magny, he ends up getting the right side of the decision. I also wonder about the durability of Neil Magny. He's 34 years old. His opponent's 36 years old. He has been finished in five of his eight losses, a few by submissions, a few by KO. At 34 years old, we gotta keep an eye on the chin of Neil Magny. Max Griffin, his most dangerous weapon is his hands. He does like to kick in the lower legs, that's part of his game which we'll talk about, but Max Griffin definitely has KO power. If he catches Neil Magny, will Neil Magny be okay? Will he be able to survive? In the recent fights with Neil Magny, he did shake off some hard punches against Jeff Neal and other fighters, but I'm just putting it out there. He has been finished in five of his eight losses. As for Max Griffin, born in California, he's got a black belt in Kenpo, Taekwondo, and Kung Fu. He signed with the UFC in 2016. He has a six and six overall UFC record. He's earned fight of the night and he's also earned performance of the night in the UFC. He's also a family man. Him and his fiance have a son together. Some of the most notable opponents that Max Griffin has fought thus far in the UFC. He made his UFC debut in 2016 against Colby Covington. Lost a fight, round three vat ko from ground and pound he was a big dog there at plus 300 on the money line he fought alex Oliveira 2020 lost the fight by split decision as a plus 125 underdog that's a concern for me because max griffin he should have won that fight the ufc was giving him a, a layup there to win a fight against a gatekeeper an older fighter and he ends up coming on the wrong side of his split decision ramiz Brahimaj, if you want to see something nasty watch that film the links down below he breaks ramiz's ear like doesn't just tear it off like he breaks it the ears hanging disgusting moment there in that fight. They stopped the fight in round three because the ear is just hanging off of Ramiz Brahmaj. Now that happens because of a nasty elbow from Mass Griffin. He knows how to use elbows while well in the clinch, which we'll talk more about. He was a minus 145 favorite going to that fight against Ramiz. And lastly, Carlos Condit, who he fought last year, 2021, got the decision winner over the Wiley Veteran. He was a minus 190 favorite in that fight. One judge had him winning all three rounds. The other two judges had it 29-28 against the Wiley Veteran, Carlos Condit. Decent showing from Mass Griffin. He did show a little slowing down in round two. That's why Carlos Condit won that round and two of the judges scorecards. Ultimately, he gets the win by decision against a guy who's definitely aging, a little bit older. The best version of Max Griffin should have been able to finish Carl's Khan in that fight. He didn't, whatever, still a win, but ultimately, not the most impressive win. The things I like about Max Griffin, he does have KO power in the hands. Now, hasn't had a high finish rate recently, but he can finish someone. With Neil Magny, I mentioned, is there a question about his chin? He was finishing five of his eight losses. Could that be a factor here? I mean, Neil Magny showed a good chin against Jeff Neal, but Max Griffin has some serious power in his hands. I mentioned the elbows. Max Griffin has nasty elbows in the clinch. That's how he rips or breaks Ramiz Brahmas ear off. But it wasn't that one elbow. He had landed a lot of elbows in that fight. When he's in the clinch, he's nasty with the elbows. And Max Griffin has a very underrated lower leg kick. Against Carlos Condit, earlier in round one, you can see Carlos Condit already trying to switch stances and his legs are already turning pretty red because of the repeated leg kicks from Max Griffin. Neil Magny's a long fighter. He's light in his feet, which would be helpful, but he's a long fighter with long legs. If Max Griffin attacks one of the lead legs there, that could be a path to... Hurting at least Neil Magny, or possibly winning around. I heard someone doing a breakdown of this fight, and they said that Max Griffin is not a very active fighter. I don't know where that comes from. Max Griffin fought twice last year, twice 2020, three times in 2019. It's early 2022 right now. I don't know how more active he could be. What do you want with the guy to fight like four times a year? But Max Griffin is an active fighter. His best weapon is his stand-up game, his kickboxing, and his striking. He's not excellent on the ground. He's kind of okay, like Neil Magny works well at range. We'll have a reach disadvantage advantage here, but his best weapon for him is on the feet kickboxing and striking. Like Neil Magny, he's also got excellent footwork. I don't think he's got the cardio or the gas tank Neil Magny has, but when he's fresh and when he's on his game, he does a great job circling his opponent, getting out of range, and he's never a standing target. The concerns for Max Griffin or the weaknesses in his game. He's an average finisher. Three of his last five wins have been by decision. For example, against Carlos Condit does kind of knock him down in round two, but doesn't finish him isn't great on the ground, has a hard time with the ground and pound positions, whereas a guy who knows how to ground and pound someone out and finish them on the ground would have more of an advantage. So for Max Griffin, an average finisher at this point. He tends to start off very strong in his fights, but then fades as the fight goes on. Not saying he's got bad cardio, just saying it appears as if he slows down. Some of it might be cardio, some of it might, might be fighter IQ, but he starts off strong and then he starts to really fade as the fight goes on. Now Max Griffin has fought elite level competition, so I give him that. On the flip side of it, he tends to come up short against elite-level competition. At this point in his career, he definitely belongs in the UFC. He's been in the UFC for years, since 2016 to be exact, so about six years he's been in the UFC. He's a good fighter. He's active. But when he faces top-level opponent, I'm not saying that Neil Magny is a top-level opponent. When he faces top-level guys, he tends to come up short. And when you look at Max Griffin's resume, he doesn't have that signature win. He's fought some signature-level fighters but not a signature win that would say, oh, this guy has fought this guy who was a champion before, got that win. Doesn't have that in this topology. He comes off to me as an average fighter in this division. The fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Griffin vs. Covington, 2016, Griffin vs. Brahmaj from 2020, Griffin vs. Condit from last year, Magny vs. Neil from last year, and Magny vs. Chiesa from last year. Those five fights are down below in the description as part of our free video library. Take advantage of that when you have some time. The last few notes I have these two fighters. The experience advantage goes towards Neil Magny. These guys are both about the same age, but Neil Magny has had more fights. As for fighter IQ, I also give the edge to Neil Magny. They both are okay average on the ground. They both are pretty good strikers, but it's the wily veteran savvy of Neil Magni. He knows how to be calm under pressure. He's okay with losing a round, but still keeping good position, keeping himself safe. I think in round two, late round two, round three, we're gonna see the veteran savvy. We're gonna see that cardio gas tank be able to outperform max griffin which brings me to the cardio factor max griffin has okay cardio at times he does slow downs neil magni has elite cardio and in his own words he uses cardio as a weapon both guys are okay finishers maybe max griffin has more punching power maybe more ko ability but both of them have got a decision a lot recently have not shown great ko power or finishing ability on the ground for boxing i love what they both do good fast hands they have the hands up in a guard good combinations they leave with a jab Don't know there's an advantage there on either side. Maybe, again, KO power for Max Griffin in his hand. He throws a little bit harder. But in terms of overall boxing technique, these guys are pretty much in the same area. For grappling, very low-level grappling, very low wrestling. I don't think either guy has an advantage in that area. And last but not least, the heart meter. I have no reason to question either guy. They're in the octagon very often. They don't seem to back down from their opponents. They both have had some recent wins. So I like the heart meter of both these guys. They don't seem to have any passion issues. We don't expect to see any early tapping or people folding up from one shot. These guys are pretty tough overall, and I expect to see a good toe-to-toe fight. Well, that's the breakdown, guys. Once again, I like Neil Magny. At minus 240, I don't love that money line, but hey, the guy seems to have the goods right now. I think Max Griffin probably puts up a good fight in round one and round two. Once we get to later round two, round three, we're gonna see the gas tech of Neil Magny start to really pay off. The props I like for this fight, the fight going the distance, I like that. I like the decision prop for Neil Magny. And if you wanna take a shot at Max Griffin by KO, That's probably the path to victory for Max Griffin. I don't see him winning all three rounds or two of the three rounds, excuse me, against Neil Magny, who's a veteran, who's savvy, has good striking, has good output. And Neil Magny probably gets a takedown or two at key moments in this fight because again, he's a savvy veteran. Thanks again for joining us, guys. Please take advantage of our free video library. We welcome comments. Give me some feedback. Do you like Max Griffin? Do you like Neil Magny? How do you see this fight playing out? All right, guys. Talk to you soon. Deuce.
1: Men, listen up. When it comes to keeping your privates in tip-top shape, use Manscaped's lawnmower 4.0. Ma'am, yes, ma'am. Talking to you, Private Peters. It's time to Shape and Scape Privates. This trimmer features skin-safe technology to help reduce the risk of nicking cuts when it comes to trimming privates. Yes, ma'am. No, I meant your actual privates. Ma'am, yes, ma'am. That was not an order. And because it's waterproof, you can trim the field rain or shine. If you like power, the Lawnmower 4.0 has a powerful 7,000 RPM motor, a 4,000K LED spotlight, a wireless charging system, and it's even got a travel lock. So, what are you waiting for? Get your privates ready for action and order your Lawnmower 4.0 today at manscaped.com. If you want the Ultimate Care Package, check out the Performance Package 4.0. You'll get the lawnmower 4.0 and the Weed Whacker Ear Nose Hair Trimmer. Oh, uh, you smell that? I sure do. I think it's coming from down in your trenches. Luckily, Manscaped includes the Crop Reviver Ball Toner Spray.
0: A refreshing spritz that's vegan and paraben-free? Mm,
1: I love the smell of ball toner in the morning. If you're using deodorant on your armpits, don't you think it's time for long-lasting protection on your groin grenades? That's why Manscaped also includes the Crop Preserver Anti-Chafing Ball Deodorant. Fire in the hole! Attention! Looking smooth, privates. Looking smooth. Get your privates ready to engage by ordering the Performance Package 4.0 by Manscaped today. Receive free worldwide shipping, a free pair of Manscaped box of briefs, and a free Shed travel bag.
0: The first fight the main card is going to be a lightweight battle between Mark Diakisi from England and Vyashlev Borshev from Russia. Borshev goes by Slava Klaus. He's 6-1 overall. 4-1 in his last five fights. Currently a favorite here at minus 150 in the money line. He's from Russia, but he's now based out of Sacramento, California. 30 years old. 11 in height with a 69-inch reach. He's out of Team Alpha Male. As for Mark Diakisi, who goes by the Bone Crusher. He's 14-5 and 5 overall, 2-3 and 3 in his last five fights. Slight dog at plus 130 in the money line. He's now out of England, but he was born in the Congo in Africa, which we'll talk about that when we go over his profile. 29 years old, 5'10 in height with a 73-inch reach. He's out of American Top Team. So height and reach-wise, a small advantage there for Mark and height. An advantage there also in reach. Age-wise, about the same. The numbers on tapology suggested Borshev is the favorite, getting 81% of the votes for Borshev and 19% coming in for Mark Diakisi. I do like Borshev to win the fight. A little surprised that Mark Diakisi is not getting a little more love, but the money line here suggests it's a pick him. I think that Borshev wins the fight. He's got a few paths to victory. This will be an exciting start to the main card. Let's review the striking numbers first. For Mark Diakisi, landing 3.06 strikes per minute, absorbing 2.80. For Borshev, landing 6.16, a little busier, absorbing 5.08. That's a lot of strikes to absorb for Borshev. We're going to talk more about that, but both fighters have a positive ratio when it comes to their striking for takedown offense marks landing 2.13 takedowns per 15 minutes zero takedowns so far in the ufc for borschev as we go over his profile and his background he's got a kickboxing background muay thai background no grappling no submissions no wrestling that's not his thing he's done interviews where he's acknowledged that he's not good at wrestling or grappling or bjj but he's working on that and making improvements for takedown defense marks defending at 62 percent rate 33 percent for borschev again borschev is not a wrestler Doesn't defend takedowns very well. Mark Diakisi will have an advantage in that area, but if he does take down Borshev, based upon a recent film, Borshev gets up pretty quickly. He fought Dakota Bush, very good wrestler, got taken down twice in round one, got back up and finished the fight. Let's talk here first about Mark Bonecrusher Diakisi, born in the Congo in Africa, but moved as a young kid to England, so he's been raised in England, has the English accent, identifies England as his home, and he flies the English flag. He was a very talented soccer player growing up before moving over to mixed martial arts. little factoid about Mark, he posed for a gay magazine in Europe a few years ago, and he actually is the first ever openly gay man in the UFC. He's received love from fighters in the UFC, fighters outside the UFC, executives saying, listen, it's a good thing. We're in 2022. You got to be yourself. We've got some female fighters that we've known of for a while that are definitely playing for the same team. In this case, here, Mark did a nice big full center fold in a gay magazine. He's openly gay. He's got a partner who he calls his fiancee, and they have several kids together. He worked as a railway engineer before committing to his pro career in mixed martial arts. He went 9-0 as an amateur. Purple belt in BJJ. He fought in B prior to signing with the UFC. He signed with the UFC in 2016. He has a 5-5 five five record in the UFC. The most notable opponents for Mark Diakisi. He fought Rafael Alves last year, 2021. Lost the fight round one via submission. He was a minus 240 favorite going into that fight. Javier Fiziev, 2020. Lost the fight by decision. He was favored in that fight as well. Minus 175 to be specific. Rafael Fiziev dropped every single thing possible on Diakisi in this fight. And quite honestly, it was a good showing for Mark. He showed durability, body kicks, leg kicks. If you know anything about Hafael Fiziev, this guy throws with a lot of power, and he's throwing a lot of shots at Mark Diakisi, and he took them all. So not the worst loss in the world. Hafael Fiziev is working his way towards a title shot at some point soon. That's not the worst loss in his career. But again, he was favored, minus 175 going to that fight. Against Dan Hooker, 2017, round three submission loss. You guessed it, he was minus 175 favorite. The things I like about Mark Diakisi, he's very athletic, powerful punching power. He has shown signs of good durability. Again, in the fight against Fiziev, he took a lot of shots and he was able to go the full distance. Now, the weaknesses for Mark, his boxing defense isn't great. For example, Fiziev didn't finish him, but he landed whatever he wanted to land. Body kicks, head kicks, punches, whatever he wanted to land, he was able to land on Mark Diakisi. So Diakisi showed durability in that fight, but showed very poor stand-up defense. He's 2-5 and five in his last seven fights. He has very poor submission defense, and he taps very quickly. If you watch the fight against Hooker and the fight against Alves, it's like watching the same thing. He falls into a guillotine choke after he's trying to get a takedown or he's trying to initiate a takedown, and he taps so quickly. I mean, he doesn't even try to defend the the submission. He just looks to tap right away. That'll be another discussion for us at the end of the video about his heart and how much he really wants it. Of his five career losses, he lost two of those by submission. He was favored in all five of his losses. This is incredible. Minus 175 against Fiziev. Minus 240 against Alves. Minus 250 against Close. Minus 175 against Hooker. And minus 150 against Hawk Prost. The dupe was favored in every loss that he's had in his career. Astonishing. Now, ironically enough, he was a plus 150 underdog when he fought against Joe Duffy and he won that fight. Up to this point, the books have not figured this guy out. He's not a solid finisher. His last finish was in 2017, five years ago. His last two wins were via decision. Let's talk about Slava Claus. He was born in Russia, but now resides in California. He grew up in a very dangerous area that was formerly the Soviet Union. And after the Soviet Union fell apart, he's described it as an area that fell into crime. It was common for people to go missing, be killed. He estimated about half of the people in his town were either once in prison or somehow organized in some level of crime or gang violence. When he was eight years old, his father enrolled him to a kickboxing gym. He fought in over 200 amateur kickboxing matches. He's the former Russian national kickboxing champion in 2006. He became amateur world kickboxing champion in 2011 at 19 years old. As a pro in 2011, he won the K1 World Kickboxing Championships. Grappling, wrestling, and BJJ are the last forms of mixed martial arts that he's been studying. He's done interviews where he's talked about how he didn't like those forms of martial arts before, didn't really respect it. Now that he's a mixed martial artist himself, he respects BJJ skills, grappling, and wrestling, but he also acknowledges that that's a part of his game that he's very well behind. He's trying to catch up in that area, and he's at a good gym. Team Alpha Male, they're going to help him out. When you watch him fight, Do not expect him to get a submission do not expect him to do any grappling on purpose or any takedowns he will get taken down but he works back up to his feet his wife and him have two children he moved his whole family from russia a few years ago out to california so he could focus on this new venture of becoming a mixed martial artist and training at the highest level gym he could possibly train at he's currently in the united states on a p1 visa which is designated for athletes the most notable opponents that he's faced thus far he fought dakota bush earlier this year a round one liver shot that drops bush he's in a ton of pain he gets that shot with a left hook to the body We're going to talk more about this liver shot here. I don't think that was a lucky shot. He came into that fight as a minus 200 favorite against Bush. As the fight starts in round one, he looks like he's just observing his opponent, Bush. Not throwing much, kind of downloading everything, picking up on the different techniques, seeing what Bush does, see how how he moves. Doesn't throw many strikes, no kicks, former kickboxer. Just sort of watching and analyzing what's going on in front of him. He gets taken down. All right, no big deal. Gets back up. After the second takedown he gets taken down, he works his way back up. You start seeing him really pick up the patterns of Dakota Bush. After he gets up from the mat with Dakota Bush a second time, he lands a mean hook, body shot, right to the liver, drops Bush, gets the finish. So he's a very patient fighter. He's very analytical. He'll watch his opponent, study his opponent early on, won't just overthrow, won't get off balance. He can take a few shots. Dakota Bush definitely knocks him sideways at one point, definitely wobbles him. But even that, he sort of downloads all the information. He makes the adjustment. Uses great footwork. His footwork is amazing. Gets in and out of the striking zone pretty quickly. Is not a standing target. With all that said, I love the way he analyzed Dakota Bush. You can see him thinking, analyzing the opponent, and then eventually he finishes him in round one. Now, against Chris Duncan, his prior fight, 2021, a round two KO on Dana White Contender Series, same type of thing, except you can see that once he figures out Duncan, he unloads. Now he just starts going after Duncan, unloading combinations, kicks and combinations. So when he gets comfortable, when he knows what the opponent's doing, he'll start letting off his arsenal. Until then, he'll analyze, he'll watch what they're doing, he'll pick up their patterns. He was a plus 115 underdog in that fight against Chris Duncan. Duncan was a pretty hyped-up prospect coming over from Europe. He comes in there and realizes right away he can't keep up the speed of Borshev. Borshev has very quick hands, and he keeps everything nice and tight. His left hook is fatal. If he lands the left hook to the body or to the head, it's lights out. We'll talk more about that in a second. But in the fight against Duncan, you see how early on he's analyzing Duncan, he figures it out, starts punishing Duncan, Gets taken down of course so it makes sense duncan has a bit of a grappling game he kicks duncan in the liver in round one of that fight the replay happens after round one between rounds and the commentators are like oh wow did you see a liver shot we didn't see it the first time he makes duncan keel over from a liver shot that's back-to-back fights he kicked once and threw a hook once to the liver hurting his opponent that's not luck this guy clearly knows what he's doing he knows the anatomy of his opponent he's going after liver shots and the last fight to talk about william starks 2020 about two years ago lost that fight by split decision starks is currently in the lfa with a 7-3 overall record the things i like about Slava claws very active fighter this will be a second fight this year he fought three times in 2021 and twice in 2020. his striking with his hands and his legs is elite level don't get it twisted the guy's got amazing technique everything comes out and right back in it's snapping no big hooks no no wild punches no big overthrows let's get off balance he does have a kick in game, but his hands are so fast. You could tell he did some boxing back in his day because his hands are so fast and the technique is amazing. He also has tremendous power in both hands. Even though he's a right-handed stance fighter, his left hook, the lead hand, he can do some damage with that hand, not to mention in combination following up with the right hand, which is the power hand. He's done a four fight winning streak with four straight KOs. His last two opponents hit him, hit him hard. Duncan lands some shots, Bush landed some shots. He showed a solid chin, good durability, over the course of a career you can't be getting clipped like that all the time but what i'm saying is when he did get hit by those guys he showed a good chin good recovery skills and got right back in there and one thing i love about this fighter he is 31 so he's not like a spring chicken but he's new to this game he stays so composed you can tell he's got experience in fighting 200 amateur bouts right former championships and kickboxing he's so composed in the first round against bush bush is throwing spinning kicks all kind of exciting stuff He's putting on pressure. He hurts Borshev a little bit. Dakota's unloading the gas tank. He's putting the pressure on, throwing big shots, big looping shots, missing it. You see Borshev, the ultimate veteran, analyzing, waiting for him to get a little gassed. As it all happens, as Bush starts to slow down, Borshev looks fresh, composed, focused, and obviously gets the finish in round one. His footwork is amazing. You could tell, former kickboxer, Muay Thai boxer, the footwork is excellent. He gets out of range, comes in range when he wants to. When he got in trouble against Dakota Bush, he was able to circle the opponent, get his wits about him by using good footwork, not staying in range, and moving his head. And last but not least, the left hook. That left hook is fatal. Watch the Duncan fight. That's his lead hand. It's one left hook, and Duncan is out. One punch knockout. He could have jumped on top of Duncan, landed a few more strikes. He gets on top of Duncan. Before the ref even comes over, he looks at Duncan and realizes, you know what? This guy's done. Ref steps in. He gets off of him. Classy move. The dude's a veteran. Don't let the 6-1 record fool you. The guy's got a lot of fighting experience, comes from a very tough part of the world, grew up in a tough neighborhood. He's not thirsty to finish up a guy on the ground when he knows the guy's already out of it. That left hook, though, is the same left hook that dropped bush which was a body shot though not a headshot so that left hook i imagine he lands it here on mark diakisi if diakisi not ready for it he's going to have his jaw spinning one way eyes the other way he's going to be on the canvas just like he did against now the weaknesses for borchev the obvious one is the grappling the wrestling bjj he's acknowledged himself that he's not good in those areas he needs to get better in those areas is mark diakisi the best grappler and submission artist in the world no he'll probably be okay in this fight but as he moves up the ladder as he faced better competition he's going to face some brazilian guys people that are very good at bjj that's going to be something he's going to have to get better at I'm sure he's working on it, but that's an area of his game that's very deficient. He hasn't faced the toughest competition. Mark Diakese definitely faced tougher guys than Borshev has. With that said, Borshev is still new in the game. This will be a second fight after coming out of the White We'll see more about him when he fights against tougher level opponents. But to now, he has not fought very tough competition. He's a bit of a one-dimensional fighter in that he doesn't have a ground game, doesn't have a BJJ game, doesn't have a grappling game. But on the feet, that one dimension is amazing. He's going to have to improve that, though, because currently right now, he's a kickboxer, Muay Thai fighter, now moving into mixed martial arts. So that deficiency is going to be exposed at some point And last but not least about the weaknesses, he does get hit in the fight against Duncan, in the fight against Bush. He does get hit pretty hard. You can see the legs kind of wobble a little bit when he got hit by Bush. Got to be careful there. He does use good hand placement. His guard is up. Defense is pretty good. His head movement's good. But got to be careful getting cracked. After time, that kind of adds up. The film we watched to break down this fight, we watched Diakisi versus Alves, Fiziev, and Hooker. We also watched Borshev versus Bush and Duncan. Those five fights, if you going to watch those on your own, they're down below in the description as part of our free video library. You'll see five links there for those five fights. The last few notes I have these two fighters. Experience-wise, we have the edge to Mark Diakisi. As for fighter IQ, I'm going to give the edge to Borshev. He's 6-1. He's hot right now. There's a lot of fighting in his background and kickboxing. I think he's bringing a lot to the table. I think Vyashilev-Borshev has got a bright future, brighter future than Mark Diakisi. As for cardio, both guys check out. I don't think that's going to be much of an issue in this fight. For finishing ability, clearly Borshev coming in here with four straight KO wins. I'm giving him the edge. Mark Diakisi won his last two fights, I believe, by decision. Hasn't had a finish in about five years. As for boxing, I give the edge to Borshev. So clean with the boxing. He's got more power than Diakisi. He throws faster strikes than Diakisi. Throws more in combination. That's going to be a big area of deficiency for Mark in this fight. If Mark wants to win this fight, he's going to have to do some grappling, take down Borshev, get some top control, get some position control time on the clock. For grappling, that's where there should be an advantage for Mark Diakisi, and it should be ever so slight. Quite honestly, Borshev has shown that he can get back up. So if Diakisi gets him down, all right, good job. Can you keep him down? Can you do some ground and pound? I haven't seen that from Mark. I don't think he's gonna be able to do that or grapple him or get him some submissions. I don't see that happening. There should be an edge for Mark Diakisi, but not much of an edge. And last but not least, the heart meter. Watch how Mark Diakisi taps out against Hooker. Watch him tap out against Rafael Alves. Rafael Alves, that fight, when they introduced Mark in that fight, he's coming out to the middle of the octagon. He walks almost all the way over to Rafael Alves Alves starts walking towards him and people kind of go in between them. You hear Mark saying, this is my cage, this is my house. Well, dude, a few minutes later, you're tapping out before you even fight off the submission. Mark Diakisi, to me, is in that same wheelhouse as Farazium. This dude does not have any desire to fight once he gets in trouble. If a submission attempt is attempted against him, his first thought is, get my hand in position so I can tap. It's not to fight the submission. Watch the fight against Hooker watch the fight against Rafael Alves. He doesn't even try to fight the submission at all. He just puts his hand in place to tap. That's it. And those are like quick taps. I'm talking like five, six, seven seconds into the submission. Like you can't have been losing your breath. You can't be getting faint. You can't be like passing out in that period of time. So he's just kind of panicky, taps out quickly. And quite frankly, it's just soft behavior. I'm not trying to question the man's manhood. I'm not talking about his sexuality. Simply in the octagon, if you put him in a submission attempt of any kind, he just quits. He gives up. So he's got a very low heart rating, in my opinion. That's the breakdown, guys. I like Borshev to win this fight. I think he wins the fight on the feet. I think he possibly knocks out Mark Diakisi. If it goes three rounds, he'll pick him apart like Hafael did. Same type of situation. You're going to have kicking going on, striking going on, more in combination, higher output. The numbers show that there's more output from Borshev. Borshev's landing 6.16 strikes minute compared to 3.06 for Mark Diakisi. Diakisi gets into these modes where he's just staring and looking, not throwing much, looking for one shot at a time. Vyashlev, once he figures out Mark Diakisi, once he figures out the patterns, he's going to start unloading in combinations. And if a left hook lands on Mark's chin or in his liver, we're going to see the same thing that we saw against Bush. I like Borshev here to win the fight. At minus 150, tons of value. Definitely gonna bet him straight up the fight knock on the distance is a prop I'll look at and the KO prop for Borshev. thanks for joining us if you haven't done so already please like And subscribe and take advantage of our free video library below you'll see five links there for the prior fights we discussed never
1: gonna make it you're not good enough there's a million other people with the same stuff you really think you're different and you must be kidding think you're gonna hit it but you just don't get it next
0: up the main card, we have a heavyweight clash between the veteran Alexei Olinik, who goes by the boa constrictor and Lier Latifi the sledgehammer Latifi is 15 and 8 overall two and three in his last five fights slight favor here at minus 200 the money line he hails from Sweden He's now based out of Boca Raton, Florida, 38 years old, 5'10 in height with a 75 inch reach. He trades out of All-Stars Trading Center. As for Linick, the 44-year-old veteran who will be 45 in three months, he has an astounding record of 59, 16 and 1, 2 and 3 in his last five fights. Slight dog here, plus 170 in the money line, he hails out of Moscow, Russia. 6'2 in height with an 80-inch reach. He trains out of Rust Fighters MMA and also Alexei olinic MMA School. According to Tapology, Latier is getting slightly more votes here at 62% compared to 38% for Linux. I like Latifi as well to win the fight, but man, this fight here is tough to win a wager on. I would imagine the best place to be at is just not to have any money in this fight at all. You can see the old man coming in here. He's wiser, a lot of experience, excellent submission ability. Lear Latifi can be a little underwhelming at times. He also started off as a light heavyweight, which we'll talk more about. There's not many heavyweights in MMA at 5'10". Most of these guys are around 6'2", in height, 6'3", 6'4", 6'7", in the case of Volkov. Let's take a glance at the striking numbers. For Olenek, landing 3.55 strikes per minute, absorbing 3.99. Not great, considering that's a negative ratio. On the other side of the Latifi is like, hold my beer, dude. He's landing 1.84 strikes per minute, absorbing 2.86. Thus, both fighters have a negative striking ratio. As for takedown offense, Olenek's landing 2.16 takedowns for 15 minutes. Latifi's landing 2.02. Both of them are averaging about two takedowns per fight. As for takedown defense, Alexa has 33% takedown defense compared to 100% for Latifi. Let's talk about the background information of these two fighters. Alexa Olenek, he was born in Ukraine, but he's Russian. I'm going go all in my soapbox again. I've been trying to explain this to people recently. The war between Russia and Ukraine is the epitome of a civil war. There are so many people on both sides that were either born in Russia, but now live in Ukraine, Born in Ukraine, now in Russia. In the case of Olenik, he was born in Ukraine, but he claims Russian nationality. Now, if you go on Wiki, identifies him as a Ukrainian national and a Russian national. In terms of Alexei's political favor or who he supports more, he's expressed on the record he supports Russia, he supported their invasion of Ukraine in 2014, he wore a shirt with Putin's face on it and actually attempted to go to Ukraine and he was denied entry into the country. Bottom line is this, he's got dual nationality and he clearly supports Russia. Take it for what you want to take it for, but that's his thats his stance. The first form of martial arts for Olympic was Combat Sambo. He's an international master of sport in Combat Sambo. A black belt in BJJ. He fought in Bellator and M1 prior to the UFC. He signed to the UFC in 2014. He has an 8-7 overall UFC record. He went pro in 1996, 26 years ago. He holds a record for most Ezekiel chokes in MMA history. He's married with five children. He and his family moved to Florida in 2016, where he now trains at ATT. He has won Performance of the Night five times. It should be noted he's the only fighter in UFC history to finish a fight with Ezekiel Choke, and he's done it twice, fighting over four decades, the 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and 2020s. He's also a smaller heavyweight, tends to come in around 240 pounds. So against bigger guys, he gives up a little bit of a size advantage. The most notable opponent in the career of Alexei, Olenek. He's fought a lot of guys, we'll stick to the more recent ones. He fought Curtis Blades, 2017, round two, Dr. Stoppage. Very odd ending, if you want to watch the fight, the link's down below. Olenik gets hurt in round one, Blades is looking pretty good. In round two, he's getting punished. He ends up on the floor, he's on all fours. For some dumb reason, Curtis Blades tries to kick him. In the head, he misses the kick, but like his toes just barely graze the ear. Of Alexo Lenik, referee stops the fight. Like, oh, what's going on? Got like, double check. It's a legal head kick. They go to the monitors, or whatever, before they even get to the review, because you can't review a fight and then keep going. Doctor goes over Lenik. Lenik pulls the proverbial Roberto Duran. He's like, No mas, I'm not good. I can't go no more. And just walks out the cage. It doesn't even stay there for the announcement of the winner. The entire time, Curtis Blades in his corner are like, What's going on? I didn't really kick him. My toes barely graze his ear. Like, what's happening here? Eventually, they announce it's a doctor stoppage. He gets a TKO victory. In the post fight interview, Curtis Blades is not very happy. He's not happy that his opponent quit. He's not happy the opponent just walked out the cage and didn't stay for the announcement of the winner. Anyway, he was happy with the result, but just not happy with the way Linux handled himself. I guess Derek Lewis, 2020, lost a fight via round 2 KO loss. He had some control time. In round 1, he had some control time over Derek Lewis, had him on his back, tried a few submissions. At the start of round 2, Lewis comes out with like a jumping hitch kick, whatever, and then wham! Hits him with a punch, Dex Alexio Linux, jumps on top of him, lands a few ground strikes, fights called off, that's it. The things I like about Alexio Linick, he is a submission master. Grappling and submissions are his cornerstone. He knows how to use grappling to get his opponent to the ground. What I mean by that is he's not great at takedowns or wrestling offense, but he'll pull a guy into his guard. He has no problem being on his back. He works very well from his back. He also knows how to use grappling to save himself in bad situations. For example, if he gets stunned or hurt, or wobbled, he'll go right to the grappling, he'll look to drag his opponent down to the ground with him, mix it up until he can recover. At the same time, he's a bit of a one-dimensional fighter. His stand-up offense, not very good. His stand-up defense, not very good. He's got very slow head movement, very slow strikes, not much on his punches. So he's one-dimensional in the fact that he needs to use grappling and submission attempts as a path to victory. It's gonna be hard for him to win any fights at this age on the scorecards. Let's talk about some of the weaknesses for Alexi Linick. Some of them are obvious. He's 44 years old, at the tail end of a very long career, His chin looks shot. The recent knockouts, not pretty. He looks like he's clearly had a lot of concussions and a lot of blows to the head. He's also a smaller heavyweight, usually about 25 pounds smaller than his opponent. He fares okay against lower level competition, against guys like Latifi, for example, but he has no business challenging anyone in the top 10. His boxing, offense, and defense are a very weak part of his game. His guard is very penetrable, head movement is non-existent, same pattern, very slow, sometimes has one hand over his head, one under his chin. Against Curtis Blades, again, he more or less just quit in the middle of the fight. It was round two, early round two, and he just said, I had enough here. I want to go home, and just walks out to Octagon. As for Latifi, born in Sweden but has Albanian ancestry. His parents immigrated to Sweden from Kosovo shortly before he was born. He began wrestling at a young age, in part because a lot of people in his family wrestle. His older brother is considered a pioneer in mixed martial arts in Sweden. His older brother is also a black belt in BJJ. He's not known for his BJJ skills. And I have no known information as to whether he's a blue belt, purple belt, or black belt BJJ. Though he has taken part in some grappling tournaments. Latifi is also a two-time national wrestling champion in Sweden. He fought in glory before signing to the UFC. He went pro in 2008. He signed with the UFC in 2013. His debut was against Gagard Musasi. He lost that fight in a light heavyweight bout. He has an 8-6 UFC record, 14 total fights. In 12 of those 14 fights, he fought as a light heavyweight. In his last two fights where he's 1-1, one one, he's fought at the heavyweight level. And I want to mention, when you look at older pictures of Latifi when he was a light heavyweight, the dude was shredded. He looked like he was in phenomenal shape. Quite frankly, he looks out of shape now. He looks like he's carrying too much weight. 5'10", 260-ish, that's not a good-looking physique. It's not a beach bot, put it that way. Some things I like about Latifi, he's comfortable with a southpaw stance or traditional stance. He'll switch stances throughout the fight. He does have 100% takedown defense. He'll need that in this fight because he'll is going to be looking to drag him to the ground. But as a reminder, Alexei doesn't mind just being on his back. Takedown defense will be helpful for Latifi to keep the fight in the feet, but also he's got to be careful falling into the guard of Alexei, where Alexei is still very dangerous. Some MMA math for you. They both fought Derek Lewis. Lewis KO'd Olenek, whereas Latifi went the full distance with Lewis. Now, some of the weaknesses for Latifi. He's won three in his last four fights, which included a three-fight losing streak. In the last fight he won against Bozer, he won that fight by split decision. He's had a very weak strength of schedule and limited experience. He had trouble with Tanner Bozer in his last fight, who's a very low-level heavyweight. As we mentioned before, he fought at the light heavyweight division i believe as a light heavyweight he looked a lot more athletic he was quicker right now he just looks out of shape he doesn't look like he's been training he's grown himself into a heavyweight fighter with a five ten height so it just doesn't look very good it's not appealing in a division where most of the guys are like six foot two six foot three his lack of bjj skills can be a fatal flaw in this fight that's the only path of victory for Alexei linik so if latifi gets on top of him like Lakita kratloff did last week with paul craig and stood there in guard the entire time and thought oh it's fine on here that's where lexi can swoop a submission of some kind and that can be the fatal flaw here for latifi Now, Latifi does get takedowns from time to time, about two per fight based upon the numbers, but doesn't do much with them. He'll stay down there, lay and pray, doesn't really posture up, no good ground strikes, no submissions. So if he gets Alexei on his back, it's going to be just more time for Alexei to relax and recover and look for submission opportunities. Last but not least, for the things that concern me about Latifi, and this is more of a personal thing. I don't like fighters who cry foul when there's no foul, like Sam Alvey. Sam Alvey, I've watched fights where he has completely faked a shot to the groin, where he's tried to grandize eye pokes that didn't happen. Like, save all that shit, dude. Go in there and win the fight. Stop trying to win the fight on some technicalities. I hate to say it, but Latifi is exactly that kind of fighter. So, for example, against Bowser, he gets punched in the eye. It's a punch. And he's, like, reaching for his eye, like, looking at the referee, like, he poked me, he poked me. The referee's like, keep fighting, dude. That was a punch. He did the same exact thing in round one against Derrick Lewis. And the referee did the same thing in return. Like, keep fighting, dude. You got punched in the eye. That's all it that is. Yeah, I don't like that quality about Latifi. It suggests to me that he's looking for an easy way out, looking for technicalities, looking for fake points. Just fight, dude. Either fight or get the fuck out the cage. So it comes up to me as a kind of a, a bit of a fraud. The film we watched to bring down this fight, watch watched Olenek vs. Lewis, 2020. Olenek vs. Blades from 2017. Latifi vs. Bozer in 2021. And Latifi vs. Lewis in 2020. The last few notes I have in these fighters... For experience, I give the edge to the veteran Olenek for obvious reasons. He's fought almost 70 fights compared to the 22 or 23 that Leela Tifi has fought. IQ, I want to say Alexei Olenek is the smarter fighter, but man, like, he's so worn out. (laughs) His chin's not there. At the same time, Leela Tifi, he's 1-1 as a heavyweight. His last win is a split decision win over Tanner Bozer. Could have gone the other way. He didn't look great in that fight. His conditioning was definitely questionable. As for cardio, I don't think either guy has great cardio. Let's say God forbid goes to decision. There's gonna be such a lack of action in round three. If Latifi gets Olenek down, he's gonna lay and pray. This may be one of the most boring fights in the card. You think heavyweight a knockout should happen, but if Latifi doesn't like pick up his balls and come at this old man and try to knock him out and stands back and looks for an easy path to victory, this may very well be one of the most boring UFC fights we're gonna see this year. For finishing ability, I guess Olenek has a slight edge there because he has got the submission ability. We know Latifi's not a big knockout guy, tends to fight very tentative. So I'm gonna give a slight edge there to the veteran. Boxing, I'm gonna give edge to Latifi because. Alexei just can't box at all. No boxing skills, just slow as all shit. Easy to hit, no defense on the feet. He needs to fight to be on the ground to have any chance to win this fight. As for grappling, Alexei Olinik definitely has an advantage in grappling. For takedown offense, I'll say Lear Latifi's better at that right now, but once the fight's on the ground, Olenek is gonna be much more dangerous than Latifi. And last but not least, the heart meter, who has more heart here, in my opinion, they both lack heart. Alexia Linick quit in that fight against Curtis Blades. That was 2017. That was like five years ago. Just walks out the cage, like, you know, I'm good. I'm all right. Get my paycheck. I'm going home. See you guys later. Just came off to me like, look, dude, you don't want to really be in there anymore. You don't want that smoke. Yes, you want the paycheck, but you're not going to really push yourself and go the distance. Reminds me a lot of Andre Orlovsky. Orlovsky, great veteran. Fought, had the best of his days way behind him. Now when he gets struck one time hard, or someone just tries to start doing a submission on him, he just immediately taps. He gets out of there. He's like, no, I'm good. I'm not taking damage. As for Latifi again, here's a guy trying to get points on the cards from files or violations that didn't happen. He can't recognize the difference between getting punched in the eye or getting poked in the eye. So don't be surprised if in round one or two, you got Latifi bending over, holding his eye, asking for an eye poke that didn't happen. That's the breakdown guys. Not to be a party pooper. I just think this fight is going to be terrible. Now what could make it exciting? Leo knocking out the old man at some point, or even more exciting would be Alexio Linux swooping up some kind of a submission. At plus 170, if you're gonna have to bet in this fight, cause you're a full d champ and you just wanna put somebody in the fight, take a stab at the veteran, you just never know. He's got a lot more experience. He can submit his opponents. Leo is a light heavyweight who's eaten himself into a heavyweight and doesn't have very good skills. he's even on the roster. With that said, bet with caution, I'm gonna pick Leo to win the fight. Not gonna be betting this fight at all. At least not, nothing that's gonna be outright on the money line. Maybe some props I'll look at later this week. He's younger by six years still about to be 40 himself so he's no spring chicken but the cardio should be there for him later in the fight the athletic ability should be there for him it just takes one shot to fold Alexi Olenek at this point I think Latifi can at least take the boxing from Olenek with no problem the ground game's got to be careful but if Olenek goes in there slows down over the course of two three rounds and Latifi just has more activity more striking more position control the path to victory for Latifi is going to be a boring ass decision all right guys thanks for joining us as usual please take advantage of our free video library below please like and subscribe if you haven't done that already and we're on to the next one the next fight in the main card is going to be a flyweight battle at 125 pounds between the russian fighter oscar oscaroff who goes by bullet and the new zealand fighter kai kaira france who goes by don't blink kaira france is 23 and 9 overall three and two in his last five fights he hails out of auckland new zealand 29 years old 5'4" in height with a 66 and a half inch reach he trains of the notable city kickboxing as for Oscar, he's technically undefeated at 14 0 and 1 he's 4 0 1 in his last five fights a favorite here at minus 350 on the money line. You can get Kaikar France on the other side at plus 270. The Russian fighter is 29 years old. Same age as his opponent here, Mr. France. 5'6 in height with a 67-inch reach. So height and reach-wise, they're comparable. To be a slight 2-inch advantage there in height for Askarov and maybe a half-inch reach there for Askarov as well. Askarov trains out of Burkett FC. As for the numbers on topology, it looks like Askarov's the favorite, getting about 80% of the votes and about 20% of the votes coming in for Kaikar France. At first glance, I did like Askar as well. After doing some more film research... Looking at this money line, I'm on the side of Kaikara France. This will be my dog or pass pick on the card. This is a very dangerous fight. Very well matched. Whoever matched up this fight, great job. Both very similar height, reach, age, the whole nine. It's going to be a great fight. That's the bottom line. I like this matchup a lot. It deserves to be on the main card. Let's take a glance here at the striking numbers of these two fighters. For Askarov, he's landing 3.37 strikes per minute, absorbing 2.65 strikes per minute. As for Kaikara France, a little more output, about 5 strikes per minute, absorbing 3.79. Both guys have a positive ratio when it pertains to their striking numbers, and Kaikar France a little more busy on the feet. As for takedown offense, here's a big discrepancy. Askar's landing 2.75 takedowns for 15 minutes. You got Kaikar France landing just about a half a takedown per fight. Should be an advantage there for Askar Askarov, but I've noticed in the past with Kaikar France, when he does get taken down, he pops right back up. And France's takedown defense is pretty good at 87%, compared to 64% for Askarov. Let's look at the background information of these two fighters. For Askar Askarov, he was born in Dagestan, Russia. He was actually born deaf. Over the years, he's been able to improve his hearing a little bit, but he hears only about 20% of what the normal person would hear, which means he can't hear his corner in the octagon. He can barely hear the referee. Probably can't hear anybody talking shit to him and can't hear the crowd. That could be an advantage. It's a handicap, of course, but we'll talk about how that can also be an advantage. He won a gold medal in 2017 in the Summer Deaf Olympics, which was held in Turkey. He's an international master of sport in freestyle wrestling and combat sambo. He went pro 2013, former ACB flyweight champion. He fought in ACB prior to signing with the UFC. He signed with the UFC in 2019. He's got a 3-0-1 record in the UFC. The most notable opponents that Askar has fought to date he fought brandon moreno 2019 went to a split decision draw very interesting fight exciting fight but kind of weird that they ended up with a draw we had one judge with 30 27 for moreno we had another judge with a 10 8 round in the third round so that made it even for him and then the other judge saw it for ascar ascroft but you have to have at least two judges to win the fight so it goes to a split decision draw he was a slight favorite going to that fight at minus 165 on the money line he got takedowns in round one and two of that fight. He can take almost anyone down to the ground. Doesn't do a great job of keeping those guys down very long, but he can get takedowns. In that fight, when Askar was on his back, he was so effective. Tons of elbows made it very hard for Moreno. Now, Moreno has improved his ground game since then. But in that fight, you can see that Askar Askarov is very comfortable either on top or on his back. And from his back, he can get arm bars. He tried an arm bar there in round one against Marino. Marino had to be very careful. But when they were just in his full guard, landing tons of elbows, Marino made it very uncomfortable for him. He also displayed a very good chin against Marino. He took a few hard shots. Marino could punch very hard. The Mexican fighters got power in his hands. He took the shots very well. He got wobbled a little bit, but recovered quickly, used his grappling, and recovered. In round two, Marino drops Askarov with a head kick. When you rewind it and watch it slowly, it's a little bit more of a slip. The head kick was not flush, but in the moment, it was exciting. Askarov goes right to the grappling, he uses good fighter IQ, survives it, gets back up on his feet, he's totally okay. Now, notably on the scorecards, two judges gave the first two rounds to Askar Askaroff, 10-9, 10-9. At that point, you're like, he should be able to win the fight. He goes to decision, right? But again, one judge gave it a 10-8 in round three. The other judge thought every single round was won by Moreno. But so one of the weirdest scorecards you can imagine, which ends up into a split decision draw. And just a side note, the media members all had Moreno winning the fight. Every single one of them either 30-27 or 29-28, and no one had a 10-8 round. In the 10-8 round, which is round three, Askar Askarov finishes that round actually on top. Now, it wasn't a lot of top time, maybe 25 seconds, but he finishes on top of Moreno actually doing some work. That judge who had a 10-8 in round three for... Uh, Moreno, just a complete buffoon. Don't understand that at all, and he ruins the scorecards. I don't think that Asgard should've won the fight per se, but it should've been a 10 round. There should not have been no 10 rounds in that fight. It was a very close fight. His next opponent we wanna talk about, Tim Elliott, 2020 decision win. He was a minus 145 favorite going to that fight. He cracked Elliott in round one. I implore you, watch that film. As you know here, we'll provide links down below in the description for the films we're talking about. Watch the film. He hits Tim Elliott so hard that Elliott stiffens up on the feet, like legs straight, almost like blacks out, And then just from like some, I don't know, man, out of nowhere, like an injection from Jesus, he just pops back. Like, I'm okay. I'm on the feet. I'm all right. It was the weirdest thing. I've never seen a guy get hit on their feet and go stiff, like rigor mortis, like stiff leg, head drops down. Like he's about to do the Leaning Tower of Pisa right to the ground. And he just snaps back into it. Fucking Tim Elliott, man. What a roughneck. Anyway, that's a nice fight. Very exciting. Both guys go at it. One thing you see in that fight with Askarov, which is common with him, we'll talk more about this and his weaknesses. He likes to trade with dudes. He will take a few shots. He's got a lot of confidence in his chin. Tim Elliott, you know, he's a wild man to trade with anybody, right? Now, in that fight though against Elliott, he was able to get some takedowns and then keep top control. Elliott couldn't get back up. Askar shows he's not just a guy who can take people down; he can keep some opponents down. Now, sometimes he's against guys who pop back up, and against Kai of France, I think it's gonna be harder to keep him on the ground. But in that fight, he does crack Elliott a few times, gets him hurt, and then uses takedowns to get position control. The next fight I want to talk about, Alexander Pantoja, 2020 decision win. He was a plus 145 underdog going to that fight, which is a pick him, but he wins the fight. It's a notable thing with him on the money line. He's very close recently, minus 150, plus 145. Here's minus 350. Partially the reason why I'm picking Kaikara France to win the fight is because the money line is not accurate. When they're not accurate with the books, we got to look for advantages there. Here's an advantage. The money line opened up at like minus 250, I think, for Askarov. Now it's at minus 350. People are steaming this. They're parlaying it. The numbers are now starting to grow here for Askarov. This has danger written all over it. I'm not saying Askarov can't win the fight. I'm not saying he can't wrestle Kyra to the ground. I'm not saying he can't win a round or two. Of course he can. He's a very good fighter. He's 14-0-1 for a reason. But it should be 350. <laughs> no way. It should be more like minus 150. It should be more like a pick Both these guys are very good fighters. And the last fight to mention, Benavidez, 2021 decision win. A minus 140 favorite going into that fight. Again, he's been consistently around that minus 140, plus 110. Here he is in this fight, all of a sudden exploding at minus 350. Not sure why. And in that fight, decision. Pantosha fight. Decision. Tim Elliott. Decision. Moreno. Split decision draw. He's not finishing these guys. Matter of fact, his last four or five fights have all got a decision. He's not dominating his opponents. This money line here suggests he's going to dominate Kyra France. And I'm like, really? Is France not a good fighter? The things I like about Askar Askarov, his wrestling is elite level. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He will get multiple takedowns in every single fight, and the numbers support that. He's also got solid submission defense. Now, Kyra France is not known for submitting people, but in the event that Askarov gives up his back for some reason, like he did against Moreno, he could fight the submissions very well. He's got great submission defense. He's also undefeated, and winning is a habit. He's got the habit of winning. The one draw being against a former champion in Moreno, one of the top guys in that division. He took the best punches from Moreno. He did a good enough job to win the fight. The one judge, again, screwed the pooch with a 10-8 third round. Not sure what he was doing there. Now, let's look at the handicap that Askar Asgroff has. Born deaf, but has 20% now hearing. That means he doesn't hear people talking shit to him. <laughs> he can't hear the referee annoying him. Doesn't hear the crowd booing or cheering or whatever else the case may be. Can't even hear his corner as well giving him instructions during the fight, which that is clearly not good. But it's a way of him to also lock in and be in his own world. When you have a handicap, for example, not seeing very well or not hearing very well or not having a sense of smell, you sort of make up for those handicaps in other areas. So this handicap he has of not being able to hear, it can be used, I think, as a benefit for him. Now, not suggesting it's not good to hear. No, I'm not trying to say that. I don't want to go overboard here. But the bottom line is him not being able to hear well can sort of allow him to lock more in and focus on his world. That's how I'm translating that handicap that he has. I could be reaching there, but there could be a worse handicap. Not being able to see, for example, would be a bigger issue if you're fighting mixed martial arts. And last thing for Askarov, he's got a solid chin. You see that against Moreno. He takes the best shots possible for Moreno and keeps on ticking. Now, we're going to talk about some of those shots he took. Maybe he needs to shore up his defense. The bottom line is he's shown to have a very, very good chin. Now, the weaknesses for Askar Askarov, a limited finisher. We talked about that recently. He's got zero finishes in the UFC. His last four fights have all got a decision. Now, prior to joining the UFC, prior to that, he had 10 finishes in 11 fights. Weird how that happens, right? Guys can go out there in the regional scene, other promotions, get a ton of finishes, they step into the best promotion in the world, and all of a sudden, they're not finishing anybody. So in his case here, he can finish bad opponents, regional opponents, he's not finishing anyone in the UFC. In this fight, could he knock out Kyra France? Could he submit him? Absolutely, he has those paths to possible victory. But just should be noted, he's not finishing anyone recently. One of my biggest concerns for is. He will trade with guys. He did that against Moreno, and it almost cost him. He got clipped a few times in that fight. There's no doubt about it. It's like playing Russian roulette. The Russian, here, playing Russian roulette. You're taking a risk you shouldn't take. If you're a good grappler and a good wrestler, don't stand with Moreno. Don't stand with an elite striker. I do think Kyra France is an elite striker. If he stands with Kyra France, he's going to get clipped. He's a little bit too much confidence in his chin, in my opinion, and he's got to be a little careful of that against elite-level strikers. There's also going to be a speed disadvantage for Askarov in this fight. He's quick. He's athletic. Kyra France is quicker and more athletic. That may show up on the hands where you're gonna have Asghar trying to trade with this guy and he'll end up on a short end of the stick at times with Kyra France who's much faster and throws great combinations. And the last concern for Askar in this fight, France to me is more athletic in almost every single way. If Askar gets a takedown, I imagine Kyra France gets back up pretty quickly. Askarov is going to need not just takedowns, but position control. I don't imagine Kyra France is going to allow that to happen. He's very quick, quick twitch muscles, doesn't get cast out. So in this fight, there could be some takedowns for Askar, but can he keep Kyra France down? And I say no. I don't think he will be able to keep him down. Let's talk about Kai Kyra France. Born and raised in New Zealand. He's got Maori descent. The Maori's are the indigenous Polynesian people of New Zealand. He traded the world-renowned city kickboxing in New Zealand with the likes of Adasanya, Dan Hooker, and Volkanovski. He began BJJ training at the age of 10 years old because he was being bullied in school for being a smaller guy, having shorter stature. So he's like, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna learn how to fight. So I wanna get somebody's face so I can actually defend myself. I don't care if I'm a small guy. He's got an 0 one amateur record. The story has it that he dropped out of college after seeing a Facebook post promoting a scholarship opportunity to train at Chaga Muay Thai. I don't believe these stories of people dropping out of college for training or this idea that you can't go to college and also do mixed martial arts. Or It's just, it's just bullshit. If he did go to college and dropped out, to get a training scholarship to train a tiger Muay Thai, I mean, I don't know. Decision making is not very good. Now, if you decide to drop out of college because your grades are bad or you can't afford it, okay, say that. But not because you saw a Facebook post to get a scholarship for Tiger Muay Thai. In any event, he applies to the scholarship program, does two tryouts, and he actually secures the scholarship, and that begins his path to more serious mixed martial arts. He went pro 2010. He fought in the Ultimate Fighter in 2016. He signed to the UFC in 2018. His UFC record is six and two. Him and his wife have a son. That was born last year his most notable opponents he also fought brandon moreno and lost by a decision man that first round he wobbles moreno he clips him moreno has to actually put his hand down to get his balance and that's my issue here i think france has got unbelievable hands a little underrated if Askar Askarov wants to start trading with with france it's not going to be a recipe for success it's gonna be a recipe for disaster Against Brandon Royval, 2020, exciting first minute of that fight. So Brandon Royval gets knocked down by the very powerful overhand right of Kyra France, was one of his most lethal weapons in his arsenal. Then France gets a little excited, gets a little sloppy, and then he gets a spinning elbow to the face. He gets knocked down. And actually, Kyra France gets knocked down twice in round one of that fight. Shows good durability, shows good survival skills, shows a solid chin. A little wild, though, right? you got to keep things in perspective. Gets a little bit too crazy. But that overhand right is mean, and he dropped Roy Val with that. He also hurt Marina with that. He also fought Richie Lang 2017, lost that fight by decision. All the fighters we're talking about in his tapology are all current UFC fighters. Cody Garbrandt, 2021, just last year. Round 1 KO with several knockdowns in round 1. He beat the shit out of Cody Garbrandt. The knockout would be better if Cody Garbrandt had not been knocked out four of his last five losses and wasn't currently one in five in his last six fights. We all know Cody Garbrandt does not have a chin anymore. With that said, you got to go in there and expose it. And France did. France beat his ass all over the cage. It was a one-sided fight. He beat the hell out of Cody Garbrandt. And last but not least, he fought Dana Baccarat back in the day, 2013, in Legend FC. He's also in the UFC currently. He lost that fight by decision. Now, the things I like about Cara France, his overhand right is lethal. He's buckled some of the best guys in the division with that overhand right. At 125 pounds, he can hurt anybody in this division with that overhand right. You could ask Roval. You could ask Moreno. He uses it in combination. He usually starts off with a lead jab and the overhand right comes right after it. Francis is also a very active fighter. He fought twice last year, twice 2020 and three times 2019. He's currently on a two fight winning streak. His last two losses are quality losses, losing to Brandon Moreno by decision and losing to Brandon Roval by round two submission. But ultimately he belongs in that top echelon of this division, he's shown that. He uses a very wide stance. I don't like the wide stance personally, but for him, it gives him good balance. It allows him to move athletically. His kicking game is excellent. That's a product of being at City Kickboxing. Those guys were kickboxing very good there. Their coaches do a great job with all those fighters. You see the evolution of his game in kickboxing. It's, it's excellent. It's very effective. Not so much leg kicks, body kicks, front kicks, kicks in combination, I love the way he keeps his chin tucked down. He's not one of those fighters with his head up here like Paddy Pimlet. His chin's tucked down, his guard's usually up, unless he gets wild. Sometimes he gets a little wild, and then of course it's like freestyle mode, but usually he's standing in a good stance, wide stance, chin's down, and he's got a low profile. We mentioned the speed efficiency that Asgard may have in this fight. Watch the film on Kyra France. His hands are fast. He throws mean combinations. He knocked out Cody Garbrandt multiple times in that first round. The second time, I believe, when he knocked him down, it was like a three, four, five punch combination. At some point, Cody just like, bam, 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 doesn't even know where it's coming from. So his hands are quick. He's gonna have a speed advantage in this fight. And last but not least, for the things I like about Car France, he's got a chin. When he does get cracked, he responds well, he recovers well, uses good fighter IQ, looks to grapple. So the guy's got a chin. I don't see Askar Asgaroff knocking him out. I see Asgard possibly getting submission. Car France has lost a few times by submission over the course of his career, but the chin is there. As for Asgharov, his chin's there too, but I don't think his chin is as, quite as durable as Kyra France. Now the things that concern me with Kyra France, he's a little too confident at times. Who trades with Brandon Moreno? He did. Now he gets the best of it from the standpoint that he lasts the whole distance and he does hurt Moreno, but that's not a path to victory against an elite striker. You got to mix it up, use your kicks more. So there's times where I feel like he's a little too confident in his own ability to strike on the feet and that can get him into some trouble. I mentioned the submissions. He's been submitted three times in his UFC career. Now, that's not a big deal. The guy's fought 32 total fights. One of his last recent losses, though, against Roy Val, he gets submitted with a guillotine choke. In that fight, he actually picks up Roy Val. He has him, double leg takedown. And Roy Val, being the smart fighter he is, gets the hand around the neck, the head's there under the neck. He starts submitting him. They get to the ground, and it's a pretty quick tap finish. You know, that's something he's got to shore up. You can't put your head into a bad situation here against Asker Askaroff. If he shoots for a double leg takedown and gets his neck in that situation under the arm, you better believe Askar's going to try to get the submission. If he gets on top of Askar and he's in his guard, he's got to watch the arm bar. Again, I don't think his submission defense is terrible, but it has been a way that he's lost four times in his career. About half his losses have been by submission. Last but not least on Kyra France, I'm being picky here, but he's come up short against guys like Brandon Moreno, Brandon Roval, Alexander Pantoja, Dana Baccarat, all UFC level guys. All guys that are pretty good. I'm not saying they're the, all the best in the division, but Pantoja's pretty good. Roy Ball's pretty good. Moreno, former champion. Dana Baccarat, okay. He seems to come up a little short when he's fighting those top-level guys. Medium-level guys, no problem. Top-level guys become a problem. Is Askar Askarov a top-level guy? I think his record might confuse people. Oh, he's undefeated. He's Russian. He's from Dagestan. Yeah, but why would he be minus 350 against Kayakara France? These two guys are very evenly matched, in my opinion. Same age, almost the same size. Similar capabilities on the feet and on the ground speed advantage for kair france so i think this money line is way off we got to make the books pay when they do this when they're way off and people are steaming one side because they're not really doing their research and oh it's just a russian fighter oh this guy's undefeated he's going to just run through this new zealand guy not so easy now the film we watched to break down this fight we watched ascroft versus moreno Askarov versus Benavides, and ascroft versus elliot we also watched france versus garbrandt rival and moreno To watch those six fights as part of our free video library, if you look down below here on YouTube, you'll see six links that are available. Click on those links, watch the fights on your own. And I would advise you, watch some of those fights, like the first round for Ascaroff versus Moreno, very exciting. Kyra France versus Roy first round, very exciting. Then France versus Garbrandt, first round knockout. Some good film. Take your time, look at it when you have some time. Of course, it's part of our 100% free video library. Okay, the last few notes I have these two fighters. For experience, I give the edge to Kyra France. Fought 32 total fights compared to 15 fights for Askarov, so clearly he's been in the octagon a little bit more. For fighter IQ, I give them the same rating. They suffer, though, from the same mistake. They get a little too confident. They want to trade on the feet. They shouldn't be doing that with some of the fighters they do it against. If these two guys trade, I'm giving the edge to France, but it's a problem in their game. they got to be a little more intelligent and not just go out there start trading, leave their chin open to get countered, but they both do that. Otherwise, very high fighter IQ. High winning percentage. The both guys are very well-rounded. Good chins. Good durability. High cardio. For finishing ability, that's where they both have not done well recently. Recently, most of their fights have gone to decision. Can there be a finish here? Yeah, one prop to look at is Askaroff by submission or France by KO. I don't think it goes a distance, actually. I like the prop where the fight goes under or just not going to decision. I do think something happens here, explosive, whether it's Askaroff swooping up a submission or France knocking out Askaroff. These guys are volatile. They're both good athletes. They're both hungry. They want to make their jump next in their career path to possibly get a title fight. They know a finish would help them quite a bit to make that happen. The boxing advantage is on the side of France. Askar Askaroff is a good fighter. Very well-rounded, better ground game than France. But the striking advantage, speed advantage, and power advantage, I believe, is on the side of France when it comes to striking. The grappling, as I just mentioned, Askaroff has an advantage there. But, Kikar of France is no slouch. If he gets taken down, he pops back up. He's very athletic. You guys have, he's got like a wrestling build, uses good technique, gets back to his feet quickly, does not stand his back for very long. And last but not least, who has more heart? No question, both fighters have a ton of heart. If you watch their past fights, they stand in there with their opponents. They have no problem trading, sometimes to a fault. But both guys check out. There's no issues with their heart or how much they want it or who has less passion. That's the breakdown, guys. Thank you for joining us. Again, I'm on Kaikara France at plus 270. I'm not going to be parlaying either one of these fighters. I think Askar Askarov is going to be the apple pie shitter for some people this week. If they throw him into a parlay and think, oh, minus 350, it'd be fine. Bad news. Don't do it. Thanks again for joining us guys if you haven't done so already please like and subscribe and just a reminder take advantage of our free video library below all right guys we're on to the next one next up on the main card the welterweight bout at 170 pounds between matt brown who goes by immortal and brian barbarano who goes by bam 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 is 16 and 8 overall two and three in his last five fights this fight to pick him with both guys at minus 110 on the money line Barbena is from Glendale, Arizona. Thirty-two years old in ten months, so about to be thirty-three years old. Six foot in height with seventy-two inches reach. She's out of Jim O and MMA Lab. As for the Immortal, twenty-three and eighteen overall. Three two in his last five fights. He hails from Ohio, so this will be a hometown fight for him. He's currently out of Cincinnati, Ohio, 41 years old. He's six foot high with a 76 inch reach. He's out of Strong Style Fight Team and Immortal Martial Arts Center. Immortal Martial Arts Center is his gym. He's a co-owner of that facility. According to the numbers on Tapology, Brown is the favorite. getting 72% of the votes, 28% of the votes coming in for Barbarina. I like Barbarina in this fight. I'll break it down for you. I like Matt Brown. He's got a whole backstory. We'll get into that. But the bottom line is his chin is going. He's 41 years old. And I'm going to point out some reasons for you why I think Barbarina, this is his fight to win. As for the striking numbers, for Matt Brown, leading 3.68 per minute, absorbing 2.68. As for Brian Barberena landing a little more at 5.44 per minute, absorbing 4.77. As for takedown offense, Matt Brown's landing one and a half takedowns for 15 minutes. For Barberena, he's not much of a wrestler, averaging 0.19 takedowns for 15 minutes. For takedown defense, I'm surprised Barberena is at 58%. When you watch his last few fights against Wit and Weeks, he gets taken down like three or four or five, six times in each of those fights. But it says here 58% takedown defense, so I'm going to go off the numbers. For Matt Brown, he's got 64% takedown defense. If anyone gets taken down in this fight, it's going to be Matt Brown taking down Barberena. That's for sure. Now let's talk about the background of these two fighters. For Matt Brown he's from Jamestown Ohio once again this will be a homecoming for him he should have a lot of friends and family there supporting him he grew up in a very small town where he felt growing up he didn't have many opportunities beyond graduate from high school a local job at a factory so unfortunately towards the end of high school he turns to alcohol and drugs. Begins abusing the drugs to the point where he gets addicted to meth. He's on cocaine, drinking a lot, ends up overdosing in his early 20s. Flat out dies. According to his interviews, he died for a full minute. He was legally dead They bring him back to life. Went through that entire process. That wasn't the end of it for him. He continues to do drugs, continued to abuse drugs. And what ends up happening is in a weird twist of fate, he starts watching these VHS tapes of Ken Shamrock getting drunk and high with his friends. Then he would practice submission moves on his buddies all whacked out on drugs while watching these VHS videos, having dreams of one day becoming a cage fighter. It's amazing how things all happen for a reason. He goes to watch one of his buddies fight at a local cage fighting event. He's all whacked out on drugs that night. He's on a cocaine binge. He goes there and they're like, listen, we need another fighter. He's like, sign me up. So a few hours before his first fight, he's going across the street, buying a mouthpiece, going down the block to a restaurant, having his mouthpiece boiled and fitted, coming into this fight with no training, had no formal training at all other than the submission attempts he was doing on his buddies and watching VHS tapes of Ken Shamrock. Despite all this craziness going on around him, he goes out there and he actually wins the fight. He's not done yet. He fights again later that night and gets his ass torn up but goes a distance and loses by decision. After this first soire with fighting, two fights in one night with no training, he's like, you know what? I just need to train a little bit. I'll be fine. Two weeks later, he's supposed to have a kickboxing match or Muay Thai bout. He's training for the Muay Thai fight. He gets to the arena. Like, listen, it's not Muay Thai, dude. It's basically mixed martial arts. He's like, all right, fuck it yep he goes out there and he loses a decision after the fight's over he reports to work goes to his job overnight shift so this guy has the most interesting way of getting into mixed martial arts that was his opening that was his experience to getting into mixed martial arts after this all happens he starts to clean his life up gets more into mixed martial arts actually starts training full-time the name immortal was coined by some of his buddies after he died and came back like dude you came back from the dead you're immortal he's like you're right guys that's the name I should use I should use the name immortal I'm gonna come back around to that because this story does not end well and quite frankly frankly, it kind of gives me the chills to talk to you more about the background of Matt Brown. I think the people around him who care about him have got to know how to pull this guy out of the cage. This should be his last fight. He shouldn't even be fighting in my opinion. I'll talk about that as we break down this whole film. He went pro in 2014 after a 2-0 amateur career. He signed with the UFC 2008. He won fight of the night three times. He won knockout of the night once. He won performance of the night three times. He's tied with Vitor Belfort for the second most KOs in UFC history with 12. He has the most finishes in UFC welterweight history with 14. He's got the most welterweight fights in UFC history as well. The dude has a bunch of records. There's no question. The dude is a very high-level finisher. We'll go over those stats in a second. Some of the recent fights and most notable opponents from Matt Brown, he fought Diego Lima last year, won the fight via KO. Impressive. He cold-clocked Diego Lima. Had Lima, like, folded up, falling down asleep on the feet. Very impressive overhand right To finish his opponent he was a plus 145 underdog going into that fight it was a quality win for a 40 year old fighter after the fight is over you hear him yelling into the camera like not bad for a 40 year old the prior fight before that carlos condit 2021 got a decision loss he was also a plus 175 underdog going into that fight. Condit is 2-6 in his last eight fights, the only two wins being against Matt Brown and Court McGee. So that win is like, ugh. Now, Carlos Condit's been around for a long time. He's a legend of the sport as well, but he's definitely on the tail end of his career. In the fight with Condit, Brown got an early takedown in round one. He kept Condit down for most of the round that helped him secure the first round. Over the course of the fight, though Matt Brown got some takedowns, on the feet it wasn't as sharp. You can see Condit was just a little bit faster, had a little more speed. All three judges scored the fight 30-27 for Condit, but so it wasn't even close. Back to what I said before, Condit is 2-6 and six in his last eight fights. He's like 3-7 and I think seven or 8 in his last 11 fights. He's on a terrible streak. The only two fighters he beat recently, again, was Matt Brown and Court McGee. It gives you a peek into where we're at here with Matt Brown's career. He is 41. He is getting older. He's losing to guys like Carlos Condit, who are barely beating anybody. The fight prior to that was Miguel Baeza 2021 round two TKO loss. He was also underdog in that fight at plus 125 on the money line. This KO is especially bad. When you watch it and slow it down, it's not good. This is what I'm talking about with Matt Brown. This is why I think the people around him who love him, take note here what I'm saying to you. He gets knocked out by a short left hook. Look at Baeza's feet when he has that knockout. is not even planted. Baeza's like shuffling his feet, even maybe leaning backwards when he clocks Matt Brown with a left hook that just drops him into oblivion. Matt Brown falls to his back, his arms are like up, he doesn't really know what's going on. Baeza jumps on top of him, thank God the referee comes in and stops it. Now, in the first round of that fight, Matt Brown took some punishment. He got hit hard a few times by Baeza. Comes out in round two, and that's like the first punch he takes in round two. Most guys in this division take that punch, keep it moving. Matt Brown, is, his clock is cleaned. Now, granted, when you get knocked out or you get stunned, of course you're confused. He appears especially confused when he gets to his feet. Watch the replay. The link's down below. You can watch that fight. It's a short fight. Round 2 TKO. He looks lost. The referee's trying to talk to him. He's got a lost look on his face. He's looking down. At some point, he tells him, like, I'm okay, I'm okay. You're not okay, dude. You're 41 years old. Taking left hooks from a guy 12 years younger than you. And Baez hits very hard. Now, Baez has got cardio issues and gas tank issues. not the smartest fighter, but he could bang. Barbarina is not the smartest fighter. He's no spring chicken at 33 years old. But the best thing he's got going for him, he's got hands. He can put hands on guys. He can clip people. He does it all the time. If he hits Matt Brown with any of those kind of punches, Matt Brown is going to fold. He's not going to be able to make it to the full distance of this fight. If this fight goes to full distance, I would be shocked. Like, absolutely shocked. Matt Brown would have to do the best wrestling. his entire career he's a decent wrestler but Brian Barberna gets back up he pops up all the time when he gets taken down in this fight here if Matt Brown takes any of the punches that Barberna has been dishing up the last few fights he's going down so in summary with looking at that fight from Baeza it appears to me very obvious that Matt Brown's chin is gone it's not there round one he takes a little bit of a beating he survives it he looks a little stunned his nose is bleeding round two boom short left hook Baeza's is like not stepping into that punch at all he's kind of leaning back one punch it's a one punch knockout it wasn't like a two three punch combination one punch didn't look that hard and matt brown is like okay let's talk about the positives about matt brown he is an excellent finisher his last nine wins have all been by a finish eight ko's one submission all these finishes were in the ufc so not some regional talent whatever ufc caliber fighters he's got great lower leg kicks when he decides to commit to it against diego lima he committed to it beat up the front leg of diego lima forced him to change stances and eventually knocks out lima it will not be as easy for him to attack the lead leg in this fight because Brian Barberin is a southpaw, so it kind of makes it a little more of a difficult strike. With that said, he can use those strikes. It's a way to get points, make his fighter uncomfortable, and in that fight against Diego he did a great job to lower leg kicks. He's got a pretty good takedown defense, 64% according to the numbers, but against Lima, he looked especially good with takedown defense. Now Lima is not a great takedown artist. Neither is Brian Barbarina. It shouldn't be much of a factor here for Matt Brown. And last but not least, at the age of 41, the dude's been very active. Two fights last year, one fight 2020 and one fight 2019. My concerns for Matt Brown, one and two in his last three fights. I believe at this point in his career, he's also displaying some durability issues. We talked about some of them. Of his last five losses, he's been finished four times in those five losses. He's got poor hand placement when he's standing up. There's all different ways you could put your hands. You have your hands up here, whatever. Just, you know, the Floyd Mayweather thing. What are we going to do? His hands never make it above his chin. They're either somewhere below his chin, above his hips, but never in a guard position. So if, if he's fighting a guy who's got a quick jab, like even Baeza did this to him. Baez was just, boom, straight jab. His head movement isn't great. Never been great with that anyway. But now at 41, you're just, you know, physiology, you're slowing down. So the hand placement concerns me. He's always open for a punch. Doesn't tuck his chin down. His chin's straight up in the air. When he goes to swing, it's just all wide open. Barbarina is not the most disciplined fighter either. But all he needs is one chance to clock a guy who's got a weakening chin three rounds of that at some point the math just catches up with you that's 15 minutes at some point barbarina probably gets a hold of a punch that clips or hurts matt brown and one more little thing i picked up on film with matt brown when he gets into these exchanges with his opponent especially when he gets a little fatigued he does that thing that molly mccann does that duck your head and just start swinging not looking at anything just duck your head and try to hope it hits you don't even see what you're hitting man there's a flying knee waiting to happen there's a uppercut waiting to happen if he gets tired him at brown and brian gets tired too but if he gets tired and starts this like just trading, barhouse brawl head down oh my god we're gonna watch a highlight happen to this poor man he's gonna be doing <laughs> it you know what i'm saying so he he does that sometimes not all the time he's a pretty good technical fighter overall good coaching good gym good partners but ultimately, when he gets to these situations where it's like now it's just fight or flight, his back's against the cage, he just ducks his head and starts the overhand swinging. Very much of a concern for me if he gets hit with an uppercut in that situation. Now let's talk about Brian Bam Bam Babarena. one no amateur record, grew up in California and Arizona, was a standout high school football player. His father was born in Colombia, so he identifies himself as like part Colombian, part American. He'll bring the Colombian flag, the American flag to the cage with him, represents both places. He's a blue belt in BJJ. He went pro 2009. He signed with the UFC 2014. He's got a 7-6 overall record in the UFC. He went fight the night three times in UFC. And he's a family man, married with three children. The most notable opponents that Brian Barbera has faced in his career. And there's some names you're going to recognize. Vincent Luque, he came into that fight as a plus-365 underdog. Lost in round three via KO. That was in 2019. Leon Edwards, 2017, decision loss. Came in there as a plus-215 underdog. Not a bad performance as a plus-215 underdog. Going the full distance with Leon Edwards. Colby Covington, 2016, decision loss as a plus-280 underdog. Again, not a bad decision loss against quality fighter. Colby and Leon are on top of the level of that division. Darian Weeks. 2021, just last year. Decision win as a minus 135 favorite. Interesting fight, though. Weeks was literally coming off the couch from a few days' notice. Was not really training. Was not prepared. Poor guy had a really good round one and two, and then round three weeks had no energy left. Decent fight. Wasn't the most exciting fight. A lot of wrestling. Darian Weeks took down Barbarina tons of times in that fight. Again, Barbarina does not do a great job of taking defense. I'm surprised it says 58% on UFC, according to their stats. Now, all three judges had barbara winning round one and three of the fight but he definitely lost round two all the media members also had him winning the fight 29 28 so there was a unanimous consensus across the board that he won the fight 29 28 no no bs no squirrel decisions again though i do want to mention weeks was coming off the couch like a week and a half before the fight not even a week i was on the couch he said i was on the couch i wasn't training but i took the fight whatever i'm taking the last minute did a pretty good job for brian barbara you'd expect more from a veteran in the UFC. A guy who has a lot of experience. And I guess the money line reflected that. He only came in there as a minus 135 favorite. And then Jason Witt just last year. Decision loss as a minus 250 favorite. I'm going to talk about some inconsistent judging. Check this one out. All three judges had Barbarina winning round three. No problem. 10-9, 10-9. One was 10-8. All right, whatever. I can understand it because he definitely kicks the shit out of Jason Witt in round three. So the one judge who's got a 10-8, he also gave the first two rounds to Jason Witt. So that's a draw, right? Then one judge gives a 10-8 round to Witt in the second round, okay? So he has a scorecard that's 29-27. The last judge had to fight, 10-9, 10-9 the first two rounds, and the last round, 10-9 for Barbraina, giving us a majority split decision, loss. Just ugly judging. No, no consensus across the board. No, nothing's agreeable. And two 10-8s. Two 10-8s on the same fight, two different judges, two different rounds. Like, that doesn't make any fucking sense. Anyway, he got taken out several times in that fight and controlled by Wit. Wit did not want to fight in the feet. When the fight was on the feet, Wit got pieced up early, though I have to acknowledge in round two, I believe it was, Wit knocks down Barbarina twice that round, and Wit looks pretty good. Now, round three, Wit is more or less running for his life. At one point, Wit is completely banged up on his feet. Mouthpiece falls out. He's like, oh, hold on, let me reach down and get it. Referee's like, no, dude, you got to keep fighting. Barbarina comes over, just... Pieces him up while the guy's trying to reach down for his mouthpiece. And he's just like, bang, bang, CTE, CTE. Picks up the mouthpiece. Barbarina's still trying to clobber on him. The ref's like, you got to fight. You got to fight back. He's like, I'll put my mouthpiece in. He's crawling around at one point, what that is in that round, crawling on the ground and getting hit with uppercuts. Unfortunately, Barbarina, with his wonderful fighter IQ and no management of his cardio, just gets so tired and can't find the right angle. Can't finish this tough dude. Ends up going to the scorecards, and he loses the fight. If it goes one more round, he probably ends Jason Witt. But it was his fault, more or less. He came there as a minus 250 favorite, lost as a big favorite. Not a good look, and not for nothing, but Witt is just not a very talented fighter. Got a weak chin. He's got limitations in his game. He has to wrestle with the win. Brian Barberino was the perfect opponent for him because he could wrestle him, take him down, take position control, and Brian Barberino gassed out towards the end and couldn't find a way to finish his opponent. Some things I do like about Brian Bam Bam Barberino. He's a Southpaw. That's always a matchup concern when you're fighting a normal guy who's a right hander. In this fight here for Matt Brown, who's been around the block, fought a lot of good guys, there's a slight adjustment to a fighting there's a slight adjustment to a southpaw who's got a quirky fighting style like Brian Biberna does. He also has solid leg kicks. So just like Matt Brown, I've seen him use it in certain rounds of their fights to either get points on the scorecards, make their opponent uncomfortable. Against Weeks in particular, Brian Barberini did a great job making him very uncomfortable on his his lead leg, kicking specifically on the inside of the leg. He could do that against Matt Brown. Matt Brown tends to stand very heavy on his lead leg, but for Brian Barberini, you can never count him to do anything smart. Now, Brian Barberini gets taken down every single fight. He might as well just come out there and lay on the mat. He's always getting taken down. He gets back up. Now, not every single time, not very quickly every single time, But like the phrase from Anchorman, 60% of the time, it works every time. He gets up pretty quickly. In my opinion, he gets taken down here by Matt Brown. He's going to work his way back to the feet pretty quickly. In round three of his fight against Weeks, he's tired. Weeks is tired. He gets taken down, he works his way back up pretty quickly. My concerns for Bam Bam, he lacks finishing ability. His last finish was four years ago against Jake Ellenberger, round one KO. He's been teetering under 500 now recently. He's four or five in his last nine fights. He does not defend takedowns very well, as we mentioned. He can get very off balance at times. He reminds me of Tim Elliott, where it's like this quirky, weird... Throw a back fist, get off balance. That leaves him wide open for takedowns. I could see Matt Brown getting an early takedown in round one or two just because Brian Barberna is just off balance. And last thing for Brian Barberna, he did look tired against Weeks, and he looked a little tired against Witt at the end of those fights. Could that just be the end of the fight? He's gassing out, giving too much energy. I'm not sure. Doesn't look very fresh, though. At times in round two against Weeks, Weeks was coming off the couch. Weeks didn't have any preparation for this fight. Barberna had a full camp, and yet Barberna looked like the less fresher fighter in round two. Now, once round three came around, he was fresher than Weeks understandable weeks was coming here late notice bottom line i question brian Barbarina's conditioning i don't think it's great i think matt brown has a slight edge in that department the fights we watched to bring down this film we watched brown versus lima 2021 brown versus condit 2021 and brown versus baeza from 2020 we watched Barbarina versus weeks and Witten. those two fights were in 2021 you guys know the drill here those five fights you'll find them down below the description there'll be five links there you can check them out in your free time as part of our free video library the last few thoughts i have these two fighters for fighter experience i give the edge to matt brown Simply put, he's fought more cage fights, been around the block, 41 years old. Ryan Barber has fought some good guys too, just not as many cage fights. I'm going to give a slight edge there to the veteran Matt Brown. For fighter IQ, if this was five, six, seven years ago, Matt Brown, I'd give him a higher rating. My concern is not just fighter IQ, it's life IQ. I'm going to talk more about that in a second before I wrap this up. So for fighter IQ, give these guys both a low rating. They do things in the octagon that are not great right now. Some of it's more let's just say, damage, wear and tear in the case of Matt Brown. With Bam Bam, it's more just using a good fighter strategy, you know, being more intelligent, staying off your back. So both guys, to me, come in with a very low fighter IQ rating. For cardio, about the same. I mentioned before, I think Matt Brown has a slight edge. Ultimately, at 41, how good can your cardio be? Brian Barbrena looks tired at times in his fights. Maybe it's his fighting style. Maybe I'm misreading him. So for cardio, it's average with these two guys. Not great, not terrible, just average. For finishing ability... Matt Brown clearly has an edge. We talk about the numbers here. Matt Brown has finished all nine of his last nine wins. Brian Barberina has been on the streak now. Three or four of his last five fights that he's won have been by decision. For boxing, I give the edge to Brian Barberina because of the durability factor. I think Matt Brown has better hands and better technique and better striking skills. But the chin is a factor. Can you take a punch? That's a factor. Brian Barberino will get knocked down. He's just a sloppy fighter. It happens at times. And he'll roll back up with his beard and his mohawk and he's ready to go. Matt Brown can't do that anymore. He doesn't have that in his DNA now at this point. His chin is going. If he takes too many shots, he's not going to get back up. Whereas Brian Barberino, at least he could take some shots. So that's why the boxing standpoint, yes, Matt's a cleaner boxer. Yes, he's got cleaner, straighter technique. I give him to him. But the chin is gone. He doesn't do a good job protecting himself. His hands are down low. His chin is up in the air. It's not tucked. For grappling, I gotta give an edge to Matt Brown because Brian Barbarina is good at getting up, not good at getting submissions, not good at finishing people on the ground, has no takedowns in his fights, or .19 takedowns for 15 minutes, very low takedown number. So the bottom line is I give Matt Brown a slight edge in the grappling department. Now last but not least, the heart meter. Who has more heart? Matt Brown has officially died at one point in his life from a drug overdose, came back, he rocks the name Immortal. I'm not gonna question this guy's heart. This guy's one of the biggest hearts in all of mixed martial arts, and he's fighting where? In his home state of Ohio? This is a send off fight, possibly in front of his people, his crowd. You're gonna have to like kill this guy to get him out of there. As for Barbarina, I don't question his heart. I question more of his thought process, his strategy. What is he doing in there? Before I wrap this up, guys, I want to talk a little bit about Matt Brown and my concerns with him fighting in this fight or any fight moving forward. It's not my place to judge what he's doing in his life. I'm just a podcaster, amateur capper out here, giving you my opinion. When I went to Wikipedia to look up his backstory and all the different ups and downs in his life. Getting sober, mixed martial arts, how he started with that crazy situation of fighting two fights in one night. He had never had any training. Just all of it. It's an amazing story of perseverance. It's almost the American dream. Now he's a business owner. He owns Immortal Coffee. and He also owns Immortal Martial Arts. So it's amazing. This guy's doing great things in his life. He came from a small town. Didn't have a bright future at that point. Had a hard time setting goals. And here we are now at 41 years old, and he's still got the burning desire to compete. When I came across the Wikipedia page and I scrolled all the way down to find this comment from his wife, and this is super concerning. This to me is... A reason why he should probably stop fighting so after his fight against jake ellenberger that was back in 2016 with him getting k-o'd at a minute and 46 in round one after his fight against jake ellenberger brown recalled having serious post-concussion symptoms often slurring speech and having trouble with short-term memory his wife colleen brown has also stated that matt's memory is not as sharp as it once was he also himself stated that he has doubts continuing to fight because of his concussion syndromes a few months later he gets back in the cage he fights donald cerrone and gets kicked in the head and knocked out now his moniker the immortal yeah dude nobody's immortal the people around you know that you're not immortal you survived the drug overdose i commend him for rebuilding his life and doing what he's done someone has to step in here and tell him that's your name that's your stage name dude that's not your real name you're going to end up doing some serious damage to your head you have a, you have a family you got a wife you got businesses people are acknowledging around you that you're having serious concussion symptoms you're not healing from them getting back in the cage fighting again getting knocked out again here's a quote from matt brown i came really close to dying i overdosed on heroin they said i was clinically dead for over a minute i was in the mindset that there is nothing else to do i can get drunk every day and i'll still be stuck in this town or could i go to college and still be stuck back here overdosing was one of the best things that happened to me when that happened it woke me up and i was like man i gotta do something with my life my friends were like man you're a fucking immortal huh and i thought if i could beat all that stuff i could beat anything your life is not a marvel comics movie you're not spider-man you're not gonna evolve and get some type of weird powers at the age of 41 and then become this amazing fighter because I survived death and overdose. He's sustaining serious brain damage. Brian Barbarina is gonna knock him out. I don't wanna see it happen. I would rather see it goes to decision. I don't wanna see anyone get hurt like this. It's one thing to see a guy get knocked out every now and then or get submitted and you know, he goes back and recovers. Matt Brown is 41 years old. He's been taking hits to the head since that first night when he fought and that unsanctioned, whatever the hell that was. The reality is here's a tough guy, all American, very proud, I would love to see him win. I just don't want to see him fight anymore. I'll be crossing my fingers on Saturday night that he does not get KO'd ugly style in front of his fans, his family. We don't see him sustain some more serious damage to his head. The guy has all the signs of permanent concussion syndrome, the beginning signs of CTE, slurring, memory loss, not recovering from those symptoms before you get back into the cage. I wonder how the UFC handles this. This could be a bad knockout. I think the UFC is flirting with danger here on this one. They should make him sit for a while, test him and make sure he's cleared all the different steps involved with not having a concussion and going back in there fighting again. This might get ugly, guys. I hate to get very cryptic. Brian Barber wins the fight. He's sloppy, he's crazy, but one of those sloppy, crazy strikes is gonna hit Matt Brown. In return, if Matt Brown hits him with a sloppy, crazy strike, Brian still has a few more brain cells left. That's the breakdown, guys. Again, sorry to get so cryptic, but I do feel like the need to put it out there. Matt Brown is walking around on the last limb and this could be the final straw that breaks the camel's back. Thanks again for joining us, guys. Please like and subscribe if you haven't done so already. Take advantage of our free video library below, and we're on to the next one. fight up on the main card is going to be the co-main event in the flyweight division between two female fighters we've got joanne jojo wood First, Alexa Grasso. Now, you might recognize the name, Joanne Wood, thinking, where's the Calder? She got married. Her new last name is Wood. It's no longer Joanne Calderwood. Anyway, JoJo's 15 and 7 overall, 2 and 3 in her last five fights, a dog here at plus 180 on the money line. She originally is from Scotland, but now based out of Las Vegas, Nevada, where she trains out of Syndicate MMA, 36 years old, 5'6 in height with a 65 and a half inch reach. As for the Mexican fighter, Alexa Grasso, 13 and 3 overall, 3 and 2 in her last five fights, a favorite here at minus 220 on the money line. She's specifically from Guadalajara, Mexico, 28 years old, 5'5 five five in height with a 66 inch reach. She out of Lobo Gym MMA and Samurai Fight Center MMA. Now looking at the numbers on Tapology, I do like Alexa Grasso. A little surprised to see 90% of the votes coming in on Grasso. Joanne Wood's a decent fighter. She's fought some very good competition on a bit of a slide recently, but I would assume there'd be more public support on the side of Wood. I like Alexa Grasso a lot. I'm going to try to break it down for you to explain why she's one of my favorite picks on this card. Let's take a glance at the striking numbers. For Joanne Wood, she's landing 6.71 strikes per minute, absorbing 455 very high volume, very good ratio. As for Alexa Grasso, she's landing about five strikes per minute, observing 3.61. Both have a positive ratio, but Joanne Wood has a little more output based upon the numbers. Looking at the takedown offense, for Alexa Grasso, there's hardly any takedown offense. 0.28 takedowns for 15 minutes. Compared to Joanne Wood with 1.57 takedowns for 15 minutes, if JoJo looks to wrestle, that could be a path to her winning a round and maybe even winning the fight. Now, for takedown defense, they're both around 60%. Once again, if Joanne Wood attempts, let's say, six takedowns in this fight and gets half of them, that could be a path to victory for her in a close female fight where most of these fights do go to the scorecards. Let's take a look at the background of these two fighters. For Joanne Wood, she was born in Scotland, born Joanne Calderwood, of course. She previously lived in Montreal and did her training in Canada before moving over to Syndicate MMA. She began Muay Thai training at 13 years old, and it was purely by accident. Her brother's supposed to go to his first Muay Thai practice. His friend doesn't show up, so her mom is, hey, go with him. You know, go keep your brother company. It's his first class. He's nervous. She goes to the class, comes home completely in love with Muay Thai. She was a competitive swimmer at the time, drops the competitive swimming, and goes full diving into Muay Thai training twice a week, which eventually turns into two-a-day training, and she just pretty much immersed her whole life into Muay Thai. She's the former ISKA world kickboxing champion and IKF European kickboxing champion. She was once ranked the number two Muay Thai fighter in the world by World Professional Muay Thai Federation. She finished her Muay Thai kickboxing career with a 19-2 overall record. She was formerly Joanne Calderwood. She married John Wood, who's a coach at Syndicate MMA, and so now she's Joanne Wood. She has no amateur record. She has a purple belt in BJJ. She fought in an Invicta and Cage Warriors prior to the UFC. Her UFC record is eight and eight if you include all of her Ultimate Series exhibition bouts. Now, the most notable opponents that Joanne Calderwood has fought against, she fought Talia Santos last year Round one submission loss, and it was a tough one. She was a significant underdog. She wasn't favored by any means, but you think at least she would get her the first round. She doesn't. She got overwhelmed by Santos on the feet, on the ground, and at one point, you hear the commentators saying, oh, you know, Santos should be careful on the feet. Joanne is very good on the feet. That's not where Santos can get her bread buttered. Joanne is knocked down by Santos multiple times in that first round. One time, she gets back up, whatever. Next time, it's a matter of a, a right-hand combination. Santos was just much quicker than the feet. This lends to my issue of the age. I think at 36 years old, she's not too old, but she's not nearly as quick as some of these younger fighters. And Santos pieced her up in the feet, an area of Joanne Wood's game that's been known as one of her best attributes is striking on the feet, boxing. In that matchup, you couldn't tell. She had a very hard time with the forward pressure of Santos. Santos was just right in her face, landing combinations, and Joanne Wood had no answer for it. Her head movement was not great. Her boxing defense was not great. And her reaction time specifically was not great. And I hate to say this, but that fight against Santos is also a clue into why Joanne JoJo Wood is probably never going to be in a position again to be a title contender or even a top contender. To me, in that my opinion, that fight you sort of exposes it all. She's getting old. Her reaction time is slow. She's not going to beat anybody on the feet with elite boxing. She doesn't have that advantage anymore. And on the ground, which is a weak part of her game against some of the fighters that have better BJJ skills and better grappling skills. The other fight she had last year was against Lauren Murphy. She loses that fight by split decision. And it was a close fight. I can understand people who were supporting Joanne Wood who thought maybe Joanne Wood won the fight. But ultimately, round two was tough. Lauren Murphy took her down in round two. Wood could never get up. And that was a big fight. Whoever won that fight was, in essence, getting a championship fight next. Lauren Murphy did, and she lost her fight. But the point is, that's how close Joanne Wood was to a championship fight. Now, coming off of a loss against Tyler Santos... She got really outmatched. I don't see her now getting in a situation again where she's going to get a title shot anytime soon. Another fight for her against a notable fighter, Jennifer Maya. She lost to her in round one by an armbar in 2020. In that fight, she was a minus 175 favorite. The things I like about Joanne Wood, very active fighter. She fought three times last year, once 2020 and three times 2019. She has fought very, very tough opponents, better opponents than Alexa Grasso. There's no question about that. I'm going to read off these names for you here. She fought Rose Namajunas, exhibition bout, 2014, obviously lost the fight. Jessica Andraj, 2016, lost to her. Cynthia Calvillo, 2017, lost that fight. Now, one of the biggest wins on her resume, Andrea Lee. She did get a win over her a few years ago. She lost against Caitlyn Chukagan, Jennifer Maya, got a win over Arielyn Lipsky, lost to Lauren Murphy, and lost to Jessica I. That's a lot of good fighters. She's definitely fought the best of the best in the division. But. She also loses against the best of the best in the division. Andrew Lee is pretty good. Aaron Lipsky is pretty good. That's probably the two best people she's beaten her entire career. When she fights better opponents like Rose and Jessica Andrade, she gets finished. She gets arm barred, She gets TKO'd. Doesn't even get close to winning those fights. Now, my concerns for Joanne Wood. The money line has not been very good. If you've been betting on her, it's not been a good look. So, for example, at minus 135 against Lauren Murphy, she lost that fight via split decision. Minus 185 against Maya. She lost the fight round one via Armbar. Minus 115 against Kaitlyn Chukagin. That's a pick'em, but she lost that fight by decision. Plus 120 against Jessica Andrade. And you're like, she was plus 120, like just a pick'em, slight dog. Round one submission loss to Jessica Andrade. Minus 700 favorite against Mariana Moroz. Round one submission loss. That's tough. You look back at that and you're like, wait, there was a point where Joanne Wood was being way overhyped. Now she's coming in here as a plus 180 underdog. And quite frankly, I think that's too kind. I think she should be more like a plus 250. I think Alexa Grasso should be more like a minus 400. That's just my opinion. In this fight here, I still think the money line is off on her. If you've been betting on her last few fights, it's been painful because she's not been doing very well. Even as a pick she hasn't done well. This is not quite a pick here, and probably the line moves quite a bit to like plus 225 range for her by the time the fight comes around. If people do film study and look into Alexa Grasso, they're going to just simply see a much faster boxer, a much quicker striker, a good grappler, made a lot of improvements in her submission game and her BJJ skills. We'll get to that. Anyway, We mentioned the strength of schedule, which is a benefit for Joanne Wood. She's been in there with better fighters than Alexa Grasso. Problem is, she loses to all those better opponents. Not all of them, but she loses to 99% of them. She has limited finishing ability, which is not a big deal. A lot of female fighters don't have a lot of finishing ability. She's gone to decision in her last three fights. She has two finishes in total in her entire 16-fight UFC career. She's also in a bit of a tough stretch. She's had two losses in a row. She's two and four in her last six fights. We also mentioned before, if she gets taken down in a round by a good grappler, she doesn't get up. Lauren Murphy had her down almost the entire second round of their fight. She has also shown some signs recently that maybe her durability is not so good. Four of her seven losses are by a finish of some kind. If you count the exhibition matches against like Rose Namunas, she's been finished by a submission five times in her UFC career. Her stand-up defense is poor. It says here she's absorbing 4.55 strikes per minute against better boxers who are quick and snappy punches. She just gets hit too easily. Her head movement is poor. If you saw the fight against uh, Talia Santos, Santos just eats her apart. It's nothing very difficult. Her head movement is poor. Her head's right there for the other fighter. And when she throws combinations, it takes forever for her to bring her arms back up to her guard. In a women's fight, you don't expect many knockouts. She's susceptible to getting knocked out often because she's got her head wide open, doesn't block those first few punches. Next thing you know, it's too late and someone's on top of her. And last but not least for 36 year old Joanne Calderwood. Youth is not on her side anymore. She's fighting younger fighters. They're a little bit quicker than her. If you look at the Tyler Santos fight, she got outmatched. She fought old-ass Lauren Murphy. You're thinking, oh, she should get the advantage in that fight. She's a younger fighter. No, she's just as slow as Lauren Murphy, just not as effective. So I believe right now age is a factor. She is slowing down. I also believe that a few more bad losses, and maybe the UFC might send her packing. I hate to say that. They don't have many Scottish fighters on the roster. It'd be nice to see her hang around. But the reality is she went from a very hyped fighter at one point that maybe was going to have a title opportunity to now you start to see the writing on the wall. She doesn't have the durability. She's getting overwhelmed by younger opponents. This division is getting flooded with more talent. So I think age is a factor. She's aging out. This might be, unfortunately, the last few fights we see for Joanne Jojo Wood. Now, the Mexican fighter, let's talk about Lexa Grasso, born in Guadalajara, Mexico, a purple belt in BJJ. She made her pro debut in 2012. She began her pro career 5-0 with three finishes in her first five fights. She went 4-0 in Invicta before starting at the UFC, 5-3 record in the UFC overall, currently the number 11 ranked flyweight in the UFC. She earned fight of the Night honors versus Carla Esparza, a fight that she lost by split decision, but it was a tremendous fight and showed you the caliber of this young fighter she switches stances and it took me a minute to pick up on this because against macy barber for example in that fight almost 95 percent of the time in a southpaw stance you're thinking oh she's a southpaw then you watch the fight against kim and she's in a right-handed stance for like 90 percent of the time she'll switch back and forth every now and then but it seems like what she's doing is she's studying film and her and her coaches are making a plan that listen is better for you than against this opponent or traditional stance is better against this opponent she's obviously got power in both hands it feels comfortable boxing from either stance but very interesting that she will look at a fighter she's fighting against and then make that adjustment to fight that way against that fighter. Kind of suggests that she's got a high fighter IQ and that her team is doing a lot of research to get her best prepared for each of the opponents she fights against. Now, the most notable opponents for Alexa Grasso, she fought Macy Barber last year, got a decision win. She came in as minus 110 on the money line, so she was a pick em. She clearly won round one and two, but unfortunately, she drops round three. And if you check the judges' scorecards, all two judges had her winning round one and two and then losing round three. Now, as for the media members who were judging that fight, all of them also had her winning 29-28. She tore up Macy Barber on the feet. That was one of those fights where Macy Barber is like punching the air like 10 feet away from her opponent. No chance to land anything. Just a weird thing about Macy. But in the fight, once they got into range, Macy Barber was getting pieced up. Now, Macy Barber did land some heavy shots in that fight. And you see that Lexa Grasso has a chin. Clearly take a punch, but they weren't nearly as often or in combination the way that she was getting pieced up on the other side here by Lexa Grasso. Now, just a side note here on Macy Barber. I do not believe she's very good. So don't look at this fight and say, oh, Lexa Grasso beat Macy Barber. What a hot prospect. Macy Barber has been overhyped now for a little bit. She's lost two of her last three fights, and in my humble opinion, her last fight against Maverick, she should've lost that fight. Now, two judges gave her the fight, split decision win for her, but those are only two damn people in the world who thought she won that fight. Every media member had Maverick win the fight 29-28. One judge had Maverick win the fight 29-28. The entire world thought she lost the fight, but she gets to win there. Macy Barber should be 0-3 in her last three fights, on a losing streak, has very odd quirky habits in the octagon, punching the air, not even being within distance of her fighter. She looks intimidated sometimes, easy to hit. In that fight, Alexa Grasso shows how easy it is to hit Macy Barber. It's not a win that I would chalk up as a very quality win. It's just a name that people recognize. Now she fought Ji Ying Kim, That girl just had a war with Cachoeira recently. And Ji Young Kim could take a punch and she could deliver some punches. She got the win by decision. She came in as a minus 285 favorite in that fight. It's possibly one of her best wins of her career. Cause again, looking at Kim's recent fights, she's damn good, she could take a punch. But you see Alexa Grasso is mixing it up. More leg kick action. Than what kim did body kicks combinations stays predominantly in a right-handed stance but again we'll switch every now and then to a southpaw stance every judge had her win the fight 30 27 and most of the media members had her 30 27 and everyone one of the media members had her winning the fight so unanimous across the board she won the fight it also shows the same thing that she did against macy Barber. she could take a punch macy hit her with her best shots no problem kim hit her with some heavy shots and kim could hit hard i mean look what she did to catch where face in that fight very good wins there quality wins for alexa grasso gets two names that you know now here's probably the most quality effort a fight that she lost, Carla Esparza. 2019, so about two, three years ago, she lost by majority decision, which means one judge had it as a draw, the other two judges had it for Carla Esparza. She came into that fight actually as a favorite, at minus 160 at the main line. She got fired the night for that effort, and mind you, Carlos Sparza has a championship bout in about a month and a half coming up against Rose Namunas. So again, shows you the caliber of where Alexa is at. I think Alexa Grasso, that's three years ago that fight happened, is now getting better and improving. I can see her kind of getting herself in line at some point to also be a top contender and maybe take a shot at the crown. And last but not least, Ronda Marcos. She's a household name. People know who she is. She won that fight by a split decision in 2017. She was a minus 200 favorite coming into that fight. Not the best win looking at a split decision against an older fighter on the way out, no longer even in the UFC, but she was also young at that time. All right, that was about five years ago. She was 23, 24 at that time. She's grown a lot and got much better since then. And her ground game specifically is where she's made a lot of big improvements. Here's some things I like about Lexa Grasso. She's only been finished one time in her career. Very durable. It was a rear naked choke 2018. Never been knocked out. She's also got high volume. So look at this stat here. She had the third most significant strikes in a three-round MMA fight in UFC history. Although she doesn't have as much output as Joanne Wood, she could pour it on when she needs to, and she can get the volume going, and she's got the cardio to match it. She has decent lower leg kicks and body kicks. If you watch her fights, she mixes them in combination, which I love. So it'll be a one-two on top, followed by a leg kick. One-two on top, body kick. In the clinch, she's awesome. High knees on the inside, to the body, to the stomach, Against Macy Barber is a good example where she takes advantage of Macy Barber in the clinch, good underhooks, very strong in the clinch. you think Macy Barber is like a thicker, stronger fighter, and she is strong. Alexa Grasso was able to manhandle on the feet and get better positions in their grappling positions on the feet, and the inside knees were beautiful. As we mentioned before, too, she has a solid chin, never been knocked out, took the best shots from Macy Barber, took the best shots for Jian Kim. She's been known traditionally as a striker, her stand-up game, like as a boxer, but man, she's made tons of improvements on the ground. Her ground game's gotten much better. Her skills are getting better. Against Macy Barber, one time in that fight, Macy gets a takedown. is able to get the reversal because she's chasing an arm bar. Reversal's position ends up getting on top and just shows the evolution of her game. She's got a much better grappling, much better wrestling. And here's the last thing I am going to talk about for Alexa Grasso that I like. And it's probably one of the most important things about her game. She's very disciplined about getting her hands back to her head. She'll do a nice little strike. She'll strike with one hand, and her other hand is right back. It's right back up on her head. It's very disciplined fighting. Reminds me a little bit of Brandon Moreno. So she'll get her hands moving, and they come right back up. A lot of discipline. That's a lot of training. On the other side here, Joanne Wood takes forever to bring her hands back up. Her face is just open and available to be hit. Alexa Grosso does a tremendous job getting her hands up and protecting her face. So my concerns for Alexa Grosso are the weaknesses in her game. Her last seven wins have been by decision, has not been a very good finisher. She also hasn't fought the kind of competition that Joanne Wood has. You gotta give it to Joanne Wood. She's been through the gamut, has fought the best of the best in that division. Alexa Grosso at 28 years old, eight years younger, hasn't had that chance yet. She will, but how will she fare when she faces top level opponents? Maybe not much better than Joanne Wood. So you have to give Joanne Wood that. That look. she's had some recent losses, but they're against high level opponents. I do think though, Alexa Grosso is still growing you got lessa Grosso right now working her way up she's making improvements you know her potential is still going up whereas Joanne Wood I hate to say it but she's past her prime right she's on the other side of her peak and now sort of on a downside. the numbers suggest that two and three to her last five fights having a hard time slowing down the fights we watched to bring down this film we watched Wood versus Santos Wood versus Murphy Grosso versus Barber and Grosso versus Kim the four links for those fights are down below in the description if you want to check those out as part of our free video library the last few notes have these two fighters Experience-wise, I give the edge to Joanne Wood. Clearly has a deeper tapology, has fought better opponents. Her fighter IQ, I'm giving it to Alexa Grasso because she's more well-rounded at this time. It's sort of tied to the age factor. I, I like Joanne JoJo Wood. She's a very good fighter. But you got a young fighter here, Alexa Grasso, who changes stances based upon her opponent. Very cerebral, making big improvements. So from fighter IQ standpoint, I give a slight edge to the younger fighter. For cardio, they both check out. They've both done well in later rounds. I don't think cardio's going to be much of a factor. If you want to be picky, maybe the younger fighter has better cardio because she's younger, but I think the cardio for both of them checks out. For finishing ability, neither fighter's a very good finisher. If a finish does happen here, it's probably Alexa Grasso overwhelming Joanne Wood, but I'm not surprised if it goes a distance. These female fights tend to go the distance, and both these fighters have been in the decision a lot recently. For boxing, I like Joanne Wood's boxing overall she's got decent boxing for a female fighter it's just not as good as alexa grasso grasso is sharper quicker and you say, look at the numbers oh joanne was landing about seven strikes per minute compared to five strikes per minute for alexa grasso yeah i don't think that's gonna happen in this fight i think alexa grasso will land more punches and she'll land the more quality punches so for boxing i give an edge to alexa grasso for grappling i think alexa grasso has a big advantage in that department she's getting so much better making big improvements joanne Wood's not a terrible grappler but she's never been known as an elite grappler. Alexa Grosso has been known as an elite striker who now her grappling is picking up and sort of matching her striking ability. And as for the heart meter, who has more heart? I'm not going to go against Joanne Wood, the Scottish fighter. She had a very good career, good kickboxing career, 19-2 record in kickboxing. She's been in the fight game since she was 13, 14 years old when she started training Muay Thai. Unfortunately, she's on the outside now, looking in. I worry at age 36, does she throw the towel in at some point in the fight when she's not doing well? Her husband's in her corner coaching her. You don't want to see her get too hurt. She's fighting a very good striker in Alexa Grosso. So from the hard standpoint, they both check out. I don't have any questions about who wants this fight more, but unfortunately, it might not come down to who wants it more. Just maybe come down to who's the better fighter. And for me, that's Alexa Grasso. She's got the skill set, the speed. I think she's moving in the right direction. I like her being in there with some top opponents in the next year or two. Whereas Joanne Wood, by 2023, she's maybe not even UFC, maybe not even fighting anymore. That's the breakdown, guys, for Joanne Wood versus Alexa Grasso. Again, I like Grasso to win the fight. We'll talk about the props in our props show later this week. Let me know what you guys think. Do you guys like Joanne Wood? I mean, I don't want to disrespect the veteran fighter here. I do like her a lot as well. A lot of reasons to like the Scottish fighter, but I think in this matchup right here, Lesa Grasso is a shoe in to win. And at minus 220, if you get this line early in the week, you might want to lock it up. It's not going to get any better. As the week goes on, more cappers hit this, more people look into the fight, they're going to see, wow, Joanne Calder was getting a plus 180 underdog spot. That's being generous. She should be more like plus 250-ish. Alexa Grasso should be more like minus 300-ish. Anyway, guys, thanks for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe. And just a reminder, take advantage of our free video library. All right, guys. <music> The main car for UFC Fight Night Columbus is going to feature a heavyweight clash between two up-and-coming prospects, Curtis Blades, who goes by Razor, and Chris Dalkis, the former Philadelphia police officer. Dalkus is 12-4 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights, currently hailing out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where he was born and raised. 32 years old, 6'3 in height with a 76-inch reach, he trains out of Martinez, BJJ. As for the Razor, 15-3 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights, based out of Elevation Fight Team in Colorado, but he's out of Chicago, Illinois. 31 years old, 6'4 in height, so 1-inch in height advantage, 80-inch reach, so 4-inch reach advantage for Blade. Look at the numbers here on Tapology, Dalkus is getting only 12% of the votes, 88% of the votes coming in for Blade. A little surprised, not that I think Blades will lose the fight, but Chris Dalkus has a good fan following. So a little surprised there at the early numbers on Tapology, but I do like Blades to win the fight. Been in there with some better opponents. He's also got a very good wrestling ability. Chris Dalkus, for as much as I do like his fast hands, very similar to Tom Aspinall, The wrestling component is non-existent. BJJ is also not a part of his game. With Curtis Blades, he's got a wrestling background, high school, college. He's also got a record in the UFC for having the most takedowns in a heavyweight bout. Now, let's look at the striking numbers here in these two fighters. For Curtis Blades, laying 3.44 strikes per minute compared to 7.71 for Chris Dawkins, which shows you again, based upon the stats, Chris Dawkins has fast hands and very athletic. For defense, Curtis Blades allowing 1.65 strikes per minute, so good ratio for him. 3.51 for Chris Dawkins. Both guys have a good ratio when it comes to striking. Looking at takedown offense for Curtis Blade landing 6.27 takedowns for 15 minutes. That is an astonishing number, especially for a heavyweight. Chris Dawkins doesn't have a single takedown yet in the UFC. For takedown defense, Curtis Blade is not great at defending takedowns. 33% for him and 100% for Dawkins. I'm pretty sure by the end of the fight, it's not going to be 100% for Dawkins. At some point, Curtis Blade, unless he gets knocked out quickly in the fight, will get a takedown or two, which may be enough for him to win a round. Maybe enough for him to win the fight. Now, either way, I don't think this fight goes a distance. My early prediction here is this fight will not go the distance. If you got a prop available to you that's not too chalky, the fight not going to decision would be a prop that I'll be looking at. Let's take a quick look at the background of these two fighters. For Curtis Blaze, he was born in Illinois, raised near Chicago. He went 44 and 0 his senior year in wrestling. Yeah, didn't lose a single match. Went on to get a state championship. His overall high school record was 95 and 18 with 121 takedowns. Clearly has an amazing wrestling base. It's transitioned over to mixed martial arts. He uses it to his advantage. He was a multi-sport athlete in high school, also played on the football team. He signed a scholarship, a full scholarship, to Northern Illinois University. Unfortunately, after going 19-2 as a freshman and having a good year, he transfers to Harper College. Now, I want to be specific on this. Harper College is a junior college. He goes to a junior college, like a two-year school. At Harper College, he wins a national championship in junior college. And from there, he leaves college altogether. And if you look at Wiki, it says he left college because he wanted to focus on mixed martial arts. I'm not saying that's not true, but I just want to correct something here. You don't transfer from a four-year school down to a two-year school unless you usually have an academic issue. Now, I don't know that for sure. Curtis Blades could have been a great student, but junior college, when a four-year, when you go from a four-year school to a junior college, especially in the world of football, which is my background is more in football, that's usually because the, the guy we're talking about or the athlete in question has done poorly academically and now needs to go back down to junior college, get their two-year degree, get their grades up before they transfer back to a four-year school. I'm going to say, even though I have no proof of it, that he does not leave college because he wants to train in mixed martial arts. He leaves college because his grades were not good, and he decided, you know what, that's not the path for me. That's fine, too, because the guy was very accomplished. He probably could have got a four-year degree if he stayed focused in the classroom and probably had his wrestling ability to get that four-year degree. Is what it is. No big deal. The guy's a nasty heavyweight, a lot of punching power, but I just want to clarify that. He didn't go to a junior college first and then transfer to a four-year school. He went the other way around, which is usually because of an academic issue. He's a former IKF amateur MMA champion. He's got a blue belt in BJJ. 5-0 as an amateur. He signed with the UFC 2016. He has a 10-3-1 career record in the UFC. He earned performance of the night two times. Has the most takedowns, as I mentioned before, in UFC history in a single fight, which was 14 takedowns in one fight. He has a daughter with his fiance. The most notable opponents that he's fought thus far. He fought Alexander Volkov in 2020. Won the fight by decision. And quite honestly, after looking at what Aspinall did to Volkov this weekend... Doesn't look so impressive. If you're thinking that this guy right here, Curtis Blades is a good prospect, then he should have done to Volkov what Aspinall did to Volkov, which is get him out of there nice and early. He did not, won by decision. He fought Francis Ngannou twice. The first time 2016 lost due to a TKO. It was more due to an eye injury, but still TKO lost. 2018, he lost by real TKO. He got knocked out in round one. There's levels to this. Francis Ngannou is a champion for a reason. I think Curtis Blades is, you know, right below that level at this point. Young enough though, at the age of 31, where he can still make some changes, make some progress in his game then he lost in 2021 to Derek Lewis. Round 2 KO loss. Both these guys got knocked out by Derek Lewis. It happens. It's the fight game. It's the heavyweight division. You're going to get knocked out every now and then. And in the fight against Derek Lewis, it's more of his own doing. that gets him knocked out. He goes to shoot in for a takedown, and he eats the perfect uppercut, and it's lights out. And then one more guy he fought that's a recognizable name, Jarzino Rosenstrike, 2021 by decision. Now, in that fight, the crowd's booming at some point because there's limited action. Curtis Blades is getting tons of takedowns. But what happens in the fight is Curtis Blades gets a huge shiner. His eye is more or less swollen shut. He decides to use his wrestling as a way to get the advantage and get the victory and be smart. Reminds me of the Francis Ngannou fight recently against Gan, where it wasn't exciting. It was five rounds of, eh. But in the fight afterwards, we find out, Ngannou had a serious knee injury. So he went to the well, used the wrestling to get the win. To me, that shows fighter IQ. It also shows the difference in these two fighters. Chris Dalkus is a one-trick pony. Now, the one-trick's working well. He's got hands, he's quick, he's athletic but no BJJ skills, but no wrestling skills. Curtis Blades has shown in the past that if he has to resort to just wrestling alone, he can win a fight just using his wrestling. To me, that's like a fighter IQ thing, smart, having a tactical advantage here over his opponent. In this fight, most likely someone gets knocked out and finished, but let's just say somehow it does go the distance. We have a decision win here on the the record of Curtis Blades. Chris Dawkins has never won by decision. He's either knocking someone out or he's getting knocked out. For Curtis Blades, again, I think that's where you're showing the evolution of the fighter. He goes back to the well, uses, uses something that he's known how to do for years, got a good wrestling background. In this fight, if it's close, if a round is close, he'll use the wrestling takedowns to his advantage, and I don't think Chris Dawkins is going to be able to do anything about it. Dawkins does have 100% takedown defense, but has he really fought a guy who's wrestle heavy? Not really. We'll talk about his topology in a moment, but he, does not face, he has not faced guys that can wrestle as good as Curtis Blades. The things I like about Curtis Blades, excellent wrestling ability, as we mentioned. He's fought top talent in the division, better talent than, I believe, Chris Dawkins. He of course has ko power 10 of his 15 wins have been tko or ko has not a single submission in his background he's got high fight IQ, versatile fighter he could fight on the ground or on the feet and he's an active fighter fought twice last year twice 2020 and twice 2019. now for the weaknesses on curtis blades i'm just being picky here is he durable he's never lost via decision so interestingly enough all his losses are by ko other thing is no submission wins in his career so again i'm being picky here on curtis blades to me he's got the facet of wrestling he's got the stand-up game pretty good boxing but no submission wins, and maybe doesn't have the best defense against submission skills as well. Not to be worried about this opponent here, Chris Dawkus, who doesn't have any takedown ability and no submissions either. I'm trying to be picky here because there's not many weaknesses on this guy's game. He is a very good heavyweight, very athletic. Now, for Chris Dawkus, born and raised in Philadelphia, he went to Penn State University for a short time before dropping out. He enrolled in MA gym about a year before he went to the police academy. His father's a former Philadelphia police officer. He followed the path of his father. He became a police officer himself. Now he has since retired or taken a leave of absence from the Philadelphia police department so he could focus on his mixed martial arts career. 3-0 as an amateur with three KO wins as an amateur. Black Belt and BJJ. He signed to the UFC 2020. And that's like another thing. Black Belt and BJJ. He never uses Brazilian jiu-jitsu. 4-1 record in the UFC. He won Performance of the Night three times in the UFC. Now let's look at the most notable opponents for Chris Dalkis. And here's where there's a drop-off. I think Blades has definitely fought the better competition. They both fought Derek Lewis. They both got knocked out in round one. Against Alexei Olienek, a very old fighter. 43 years old to be exact when they fought. He wins that fight. Round one KO. That's what he should do to an old man. But Olienek is 2-6 in his last eight fights. In a Three-fight losing streak. 43 years old when they fought. Take it as a grain of salt. Another prior name for him, or the most recognizable, or the next most recognizable name that I could find on his topology Parker Porter, 2020 Round 1 KO. Porter's currently 3 1 in the UFC, but again, does Parker Porter, Alexio Linick, Derek Lewis, does that compare to who Curtis Blades has fought? I don't think so. Now, don't, don't get me wrong, Curtis Blades has not fought the best in the division. Yes, he has actually he fought Francis Ngannou twice. <laughs> he got starched both times. The bottom line is Curtis Blades has an experience advantage in terms of his topology history and has fought the better fighters compared to Chris Dalkus. Some things I like about Chris Dalkus. Excellent finish rate. 11 of his 12 wins are by KO. Very active fighter. He fought three times last year, twice 2020 and twice 2019. Similar to Tom Aspinon that he's a very quick heavyweight. High volume with the hands and very fast hands. That could be a problem for any heavyweight because these guys are used to fighting people with slower, big heavy shots, lumbering shots. When you look at Chris Dalkis, it's noticeable. The hands are quick. He doesn't throw too much power in every shot. He's smart about that. Uses like the Nate Diaz strategy, just kind of touching and pawing. And then when he wants to go harder, he goes harder. And that goes to the next point on him high volume, especially for a heavyweight. And that matters in a close fight. Now, granted, he doesn't win by decision very often, but if the fight were your decision, you could see a way where Chris Dalkis will land more and have more strikes and be able to win on the scorecards. Now, Mike could for Chris Dalkis just like Curtis Blades. Is durability an issue? He's been KO'd in all four of his losses. That's also indicative of being a heavyweight. That's typically how they tend to lose. But it should be noted, three of those four losses by KO were before he got into the UFC. Now, since he's been in the UFC, he has not fought high-level people, and the best opponent he fought was Derek Lewis, and he got knocked out. Same thing for Curtis Blades, when he fought high-level guys like Francis Ngannou, he also got knocked out too. Just putting it out there, he was knocked out three times part of the UFC. I wonder, I wonder about his chin, I wonder if he could take a few shots here from Curtis Blades. Now, the recent wins for Chris Dalkis, let's go over them. He beat Shamil, Abdurakhimov, Alexei Olenek, Rodrigo Nascimento, Parker Porter, And Danny Holmes. Just a bunch of very average guys to below average guys, all unranked guys currently. It, is, it just highlights the fact that he's not really fought top-level competition. And last but not least, he's a one-dimensional fighter. Now, the one-dimension is good. He's athletic. He's got good hands. With a black belt in BJJ, I don't see it happening. I don't see the BJJ skills in the octagon. He has no submission wins. He has no wrestling ability. He becomes a very one-dimensional fighter against someone like Curtis Blades, who may be looking to get takedowns early and often. That's going to be a problem for him if he's on the ground with Curtis Blades on top of him. All right, the film review. With the fights we watched to break down this film, we watched Blades vs. Strike from last year and Blades vs. Lewis from last year. We also watched Blades vs. Volkov 2020 Dawkins versus Lewis from last year, and Dawkins versus Abraham from last year. Those five fights, and the links for those five fights are down below in the description if you want to take advantage of our free video library. The last few notes I have these two fighters. Experience-wise, IQ-wise, and cardio, I give a slight edge to Curtis Blades. Cardio, because he does have a win by decision. Mr. Chris Dawkins does not have a win by decision yet, so we haven't seen him go the full distance and what he'll look like. High output, you know, seems to have a lot of energy in round one, round two. What happens if it goes to round three? We've seen that from Curtis Blades. We've seen him adjust in the fly. We've seen him wrestle three, full rounds. So cardio advantage goes to Curtis Blades. Fighter IQ, I give the edge to Curtis Blades because, again, he's not one-dimensional. He has the wrestling in his back pocket, whereas Chris Dawkins is only a stand-up fighter. And experience, again, we talked about it. Curtis Blades has fought the better fighters. Finishing ability, they both have about the same finishing ability. You got a guy with 11 of his 12 wins, and Chris Dawkins has been by KO. Curtis Blades, 10 of his 15 wins have by KO. These guys both have finishing power. As for boxing, you know, I think both fighters do things that you'd like. For Curtis Blades, maybe more power in his shots. Chris Dalkus, more technique, straight down the pipe, good combinations, and more volume. So boxing-wise, they're very comparable. They're not like two big lumbering heavyweights just throwing one big shot after another. There's some technique behind it, and they both do a good job with their guard keeping their hands up. For grappling, there's a big edge there for Curtis Blades. Not in the style of Brazilian jiu-jitsu grappling, but just taking someone to the ground, having some top control, using his wrestling. He's got a big advantage there over Chris Dalkus, who doesn't have a single takedown in his UFC experience. And last but not least, who has more heart? The Philadelphia police officer, Chris Dalkis, seems to be a very proud guy, represents Philly very well. Curtis Blades, same thing, represents Chicago very well. I don't question either guy having the heart to get through a fight. In the case of Curtis Blades, that was a tough fight he had against Rosenstrike, where he had to use the wrestling to win the fight. His eye was closing. For Chris Dalkis, he will go out on his sword. So if he loses this fight here, it's probably by a knockout. He's not going to go three rounds, especially if he's behind. If he's behind going into round three, you can expect Chris Dalkis to come out there swinging as hard as he can with no regard for his chin. That happened to him against Rosenstrike, where they got into a a battle with his back against the cage and he's like i'm not backing up anymore i'm gonna fight myself out of the corner and he just gets clipped and knocked out but from that standpoint both guys have a lot of heart i expect them to go the full tilt do whatever it takes to get the win here that's the breakdown guys i like curtis blades at minus 320 the money line is okay it is a little bit chalky but the reality is, I think the books know. You got a guy here in Curtis Blades who's a little more experienced, a little more athletic, has more than one dimension, versus a good prospect here in Chris Dalkis, who's coming off of a nasty knockout, who's sort of peaking at this point in his career. I think Curtis Blades gets the win, but you don't want to put a lot of money in this. And I think even betting it straight up is, is a big no-no. I say the fight does not to the distance. is the best prop. Whenever that prop comes out, take it. And you don't want to put, what, 320 bucks to make 100 bucks on a heavyweight fight against a guy who, you know, both been knocked out by the same guy. It's heavyweight MMA. Anything's possible. Curtis Blades should get the win. I'll put a sprinkle in some parlays with him, but I don't want to overdo it because you can imagine anything's possible. He can get caught by a right hand. Hope you guys like the breakdown. Thank you guys for joining us. Please like and subscribe. And that brings it to the end of the show, guys. Let me go over a summary of the picks we like to win. We'll start with the main card, work our way back down. We'll also discuss our favorite spots, the ones we have the most confidence in. Starting with the main event, we like Curtis Blades. Moving on down, Alexa Grasso. Brian Barbarina. Kaikara France. Lear Latifi. Vashilev Borshev. Neil Magny. Sarah McMahon. Bakaral Dana. Alishkab Manon Firot, Matthias Nikolau. And Bruno Silva. The fights we have the least confidence in... That would be Nicolau, Souza, and Latifi. The two dogs we like in this card, we like Kaikara France, and we like Sarah McMahon. The fights we have a lot of confidence in or the ones you might want to consider for some parlays. On the main card, Blades, Grasso, and Borshev. The fights we have confidence in on the prelim card, Neil Magny, Dana Baccarat, and men if you're up if you come by our twitter page we'll list some of the parlays we like a lot and we'll have a lottery parlay with all our favorites here listed together the 13 total fights thanks for joining us guys we always appreciate you coming by comments suggestions if you haven't done so already please like and subscribe thanks for your support and good luck on this card